Here's Brady. Rolling out, rolling and throwing. It's tipped in the air, and it's intercepted. It's intercepted by Roby. He lost the football back at the 20, but it doesn't matter. It was tipped by Tlaib, and the Denver defense saves it at the end. So, Don, you can add star of all subreddits to our podcast <laughs> awards list. Yeah. Because I have to assume if we are a star on Saber subreddit, we have to be a star in all subreddits. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're on the are all. I way. was so nervous to post a link to our podcast for years on any Reddit. I thought that was going to be instantly a request to be called a troll. That the second I went to any subreddit, despite the fact that the content might be exactly what the subreddit is for, yeah, I'd be considered a troll. But I figured I'd take a risk with the Sabers one. I think Reddit, like anywhere else on the internet, is uh, there's its areas. You know what I mean? Like the Sabers subreddit's a safe haven. Like I'm in the board game subreddit all the time. It's like the nicest place you could possibly visit. So whereas in the O and A one is probably the meanest place in sure. the entire internet. Yeah, right? maybe. And in, in the past you've posted uh two message boards where people might be interested, like I'm trying to think of one. Maybe the Guns N' Roses message board yeah. when like Duff yep. was on. Yep. I don't know how that would be received. A sports podcast posting it on there. Because people immediately are like, Oh, you're just looking to self promote. And it's like, Yeah, maybe, but I'm looking to show you something maybe you wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah, like of course I'm looking to self-promote, but I'm not doing it without direction. I mean, it's it's only because it's specifically about what you exist to talk about. So, right. like, what what is the difference if I – I've always wondered this. Like, what is the difference if I post it as opposed to you go on boards or subreddits or whatever and there's all kinds of links to sure. articles and works about the topic. Yeah. Uh, so people, why does it – People want to be angry about things. Yeah, I, I don't get that. It, but they were very nice to us yeah, at Saber Subreddit, so it thank was, you to yeah. them. And it was cool because I shared it with Mike Harrington, and uh, he was pretty happy with it because at least three or four people on there mentioned that they had changed their opinion of, oh, right, of yeah. him. Yeah, I did see and that. And a few did on Twitter as well and tagged him on that. So I think there's no way that Mike Harrington doesn't think coming on our podcast isn't a benefit to his overall – Image Q, Q score, or yeah. Image, or. I mean, there's nobody that I disagree with more, and probably get like angry about disagreeing. Like, I mean, you could say you get angry at someone for just being mean or something like that. But as far as opinions go, that I vehemently disagree with a lot of times, it's Mike. And I, yeah. I don't know if he's intentionally contrary. I think so. I think he probably is. A little Even bit last too. night, I was getting so aggravated because he was like showing this like five level scenario in which the Sabers will be thirtieth at the at the all-star break and you could just see him there like shaking his head condescendingly <laughs> on the whole plan. Yeah. Oh, and he, ta- he hashtagged it blueprint. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and I still don't understand why it matters that they're in 30th right now, but right. I yeah. guess he explained it on the show last week. I still don't understand why it matters. I guess he says because it matters in all other 29 cities, but no, it doesn't. I think, I believe it was you on Twitter said that, uh, the best point you can make is there's really two playoff spots, not or there's two 
There's like it's binary. Yeah, you're in, or, in out. or you're out. And yeah. if you're out, you might as well be way out. Unless like unless they looked awesome down the stretch and it just gave you something to pull for next year and you, they well, still like that, could. That one year when they were nip and tuck with Washington. And you and your dad, we we recorded a show, your dad came over, we watched the game out in the living room here. Okay. Uh it's like being in you wanted to be in. Yes. But we we ended up out. Right. So, I don't know that that season was any more successful than this one will be. We were out, not in. Right. I mean, this year so, this year I think you did And this year I went into it saying they'll probably be out. Right. So, I'm okay. I don't care that they're 30th. We're all over the place right now. Yeah. We started with Reddit and Mike yeah, and then our yeah. show and the Sabres. Real quick, my initial reaction when that guy ran that ball back was, what a dummy, get down. Right. I think he probably did the right thing because it would take some weird, fluky thing for him to fumble, the other team to recover right. get out of and the to score. end zone area, yeah. But, yeah, once he's passed, once he's in the clear. Then he slid. Well, he should have – I mean, well, he fumbled. Well, but he was sliding, I think. Oh, you think so? Or trying to get down. Well, he should have tried to score. Like, when right. I thought about it more – two. Because it, it, getting the two, because my thought is, like, then slide game's over. they couldn't lose on a field goal. They couldn't goal lose on a field goal if, if they gave the up the extra point. point. So, because my, my first reaction was, watching it live, is what a dummy. And then I'm like, uh, no, wait. This game isn't over. They still have to kick off. So, right. But that was my thought going through it again, watching the video. Season 6, episode 3. It's going to go up late in the week because for the first time in season six, we have a... Oh, a fluid situation. Oh, I thought we had a drop. Yeah, oh, yeah. Tons of them. <laughs> <laughs> we still don't have the fluid situation drop. No. But we have one this week. Uh, that believe, would be easy, too. I'm sure I could just find some canned like water noise or something. That would be free. I believe that the great mass man, David Shoemaker, will be on the podcast this week to discuss his Carolina Panthers and, of course, the Royal Rumble. If not, I promise to... Uh, rant about why either next week or at some point uh if i cut back in or whatever and then also uh we have a few other people who may be on this week they may be on the super bowl show or they may be on the show after so there's a lot of uh balls in the air as they say Mm -hmm. and uh uh, it's like when you were in college and you had a lot of balls in your mouth (laughs) 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 good one yeah (laughs) Uh, so anyway, uh, January 28, 2006, Season 6, Episode 3. We'll have two guests. We'll do a book club. Uh, we will end with one last thing. Don even says he prepared for it this week. I did. And we will start with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> This is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So Super Bowl 50 is set. And in case you haven't heard... <laughs> no, I watched the games this week. You watched them both. Well, I shouldn't say... Uh, well, nobody I watched much on of the, the second, second one. one. Yeah. Right. We'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, Denver and Carolina, the two one-seeds... Um, and I want to say, as this is a quick sidebar, I don't want to get too bucked out on this, but uh, for those outside of Buffalo that don't have a ton of Bills fans in your Facebook, <laughs> be grateful because they were the most pathetic, sad sack group of losers on Facebook celebrating the loss. And look, it it's cool to root against your rival or whatever. Yeah. Like, 
I don't want Carolina to make the Super Bowl. I don't want them to win it. Of course, I'm cheering against them. Sure. But, I mean, I, I there's a little th- bit of know your role, shut your mouth in this, and, like, they're just embarrassing themselves. I look at that a little bit, too, and my thought is, is like, when you post something like that, doesn't that – I mean, how do you not feel small? You know what I mean? Like, Especially the ones with, like, memes of Brady holding his four Super Bowl rings. <laughs> And then you're, like, somehow trying to make a mock out of that. It's like the dude has four rings since he's yeah. been in the playoffs last. Right, right. Yeah. Um, They've played in 10 conference championship games since the Bills were in the playoffs. 10 of the 16 years the Bills have set out, the Patriots have made the conference championship game. I almost wish I was wired like those people, though, because I, I had this exact thought not about that, but when I watch games – with maybe I don't have a team I like, but I have a team I dislike. You can only be mad about that. Like the feeling you get from it, at least for me, the feeling I get from watching the team lose that I don't like is way smaller than the feeling I get from watching the team I don't like win. So like, it's like a lose, lose proposition, but for these people, they, and they're the through same, parties. When they're Brady the lost, same so. people in two weeks that if the Super Bowl now sucks, <clears throat> because clearly the weaker team won. I, I mean, We'll get into that a little bit this week and next week, but it's pretty clear to me that I would have said that too. That uh, they're the better opponent for Carolina. That said, and maybe I said it last week on the show. I would have said there was no way Denver wins that game. I right, thought, they shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they needed literally. It's been eleven years since the stat of hits on QB have mm-hmm. been. And they had the most ever in that game. Oh, really? They needed to set a once in eleven year stat to win to on the two point conversion at home. Yeah. And there was still, I mean, you could argue strategy and say, well, what if Belichick would have kicked a field goal? And you look at the drive charts. Like the Broncos had, the game started with a stop and then like an eleven play, eighty three yard TD drive by the Broncos. They never had another TD drive over three plays. Their second TD came after the. Von Miller pick. So they never drove down the field again for a TD. And all the drives are like three plays, five yards, punt. Four plays, 11 yards, punt. Seven plays, 30 yards, punt. They did feel like for a Peyton Manning offense that they were ultra, ultra conservative. Like, we're okay with the three plays and punt, but we're not going to. My guess is if Carolina can come up with a game plan that gets them to 21, they win. Yeah, I would assume that's right. I mean, Carolina. What is their Denver needs to play this game in the twenties? I know you said that's a, that's a rival, so it's not teams. a it's not a team you like. But what is where are they better? I mean, they're putting up more points. Well, I don't like Carolina, but they're by far the best team in the league. And I mean, their defense af- is great too. After their loss, like the beginning of the season, then they had a lull where they're dealing with that undefeated shit. Yep. Then they lose that game, and they immediately reclaimed what was great about them. I'd have to look, too, but in the, even in the beginning of the season, weren't they kind of squeaking some out? And I mean, they needed a huge comeback in the fourth quarter to beat Seattle, which felt a little fluky at the time, but okay, they right. did it. Yeah, but now you know, Denver is 12-0 in either, other ga- either or games this year. You know, games where you might win them or you might lose them. Oh, like really? Simmons and Cousins say, I'll talk about this all the time. Okay. And, you know, if you look at the schedule, you look at your team, and you want to know how good they are. How many games did they clearly win? How many did they clearly lose? And how many did they win or lose that could have won either way? And the Broncos have gotten to the point where, and I don't want anyone to think I'm ripping this off from Sal and uh, Simmons. They said this. They're getting to the point where it's a skill now. 
So if they can make this an either-or game, they have a chance to win it, right? If they're within two or three points either way going into the fourth, you'll believe Denver can win. But as soon as it's 10 nothing Carolina, you're going to start to get the feeling it's over. Yeah, I would think so. My thought was... Luke Keekley has a pick six in both of the <laughs> playoff games. My thought was I'd like to see Carolina play from behind. Like if I'm Denver, I think you don't want to be conservative. I think you want to get them behind a little bit. They they play from ahead. It's the most confident, amazingly I, well. It's the most confident I've ever felt in a Super Bowl pick. Now there's a couple stats that make me pump my brakes a little bit. Like one, 15 and one teams are two and five in Super Bowls. Uh, teams that win the conference championship by more than 30 points are about the same. Okay. Um, that one I give more credit to than the first one. I, I don't know. Those things to me, I, I love stats too, but that's always a little bit weird to me because then you're comparing like teams that aren't them. But to say the thing about if you blow a team out in a conference championship, I know that the Bills are guilty of that. Like maybe yeah, this is just a like bit. gambling trends. Like sure, little right. things are just making me pump my brakes. And then also the narrative, the yeah. number one narrative that could possibly come out of this Super Bowl is Peyton Manning is the next John Elway and wins a championship and. Rides off. Basically announces his retirement on the podium and rides off into the sunset. And That's that, what I would like. And to that see. narrative scares me because pretty much all of America outside of Carolina are going to be rooting for that. I think. Yes. But do you think they bet that way? I mean, what's the line? Is there a line? Uh, the yet? line is like four, four and a half. Ooh, that seems low. That that has to be because of what you just said. That has to be because people are going to bet for Manning. Well, and with I think their they, hearts and not their heads. Maybe. I think they're trying to. Yeah, I don't know. It's like right in... Uh... Vegas crushes that stuff, though. I mean, anytime you think there's a bad line or something like that, they just kill it. So, so yeah, I mean, that's Super Bowl 50. Obviously, we'll talk a lot about it next week. We're going to do our Super Bowl show like we always do. Yep. You know, I'll bust my behind and try to get a Denver person, a Carolina person, and a neutral person in some capacity. It's a hard show to book every year. Because everyone's busy. It's hard. Right, yeah. Everyone's busy. Uh, we've got some people super nice to us and, like, talk to us standing outside of the venue after media day or something. You we know? don't really have Denver or Carolina guys, yeah. do we? Like, we've got a Green Bay guy. We've got we've got guys. We've got Bills guys. I'm sure you have Saints guys. So, I'll try. All right, second thing this week. Uh, Blake Griffin. <laughs> oh, boy. Blake Griffin is out four to six weeks with a broken hand that he broke on a staffer's face, I guess. Oh, uh, let's see. Yahoo.com has a story that I'm reading from here. Um, and it appears as if Blake got a little handsy with a member of the team's equipment staff and he will be out six weeks. This is from a couple tweets from Michael Eaves. Clippers forward Blake Griffin injured his right hand after hitting a member of the team's equipment staff during an argument in Toronto. The altercation started in a restaurant. It proceeded outside where Griffin hit the equipment staffer multiple times. Jeez. Um, it came after Mark Steins relayed the news, calling it a result of a team-related activity. Prior to pointing out that we won't be seeing Blake for a while, uh, sources told ESPN the hand injury unrelated to the torn quiceps muscle that had sidelined Griffin since December 26th is expected to keep him out a matter of weeks as opposed to days. How do they handle stuff like that? I mean, I'm, I, I might be guilty of asking a question or the answer to. Well, but... uh, yeah, I mean, nobody knows the answer. I, th- I don't what mean... happened? Well, right. I mean, obviously, Blake Griffin's like 6'8", and I bet the staffer isn't. No, oh, sure. I mean, There's probably an element of pick on someone your own size here. but All right. And then, I mean, I don't mean how do they handle it legally, but when someone falls down the stairs or trips 
carrying groceries. Do they pay them? Do they have to? Oh, I'm sure a salary is guaranteed. That's nuts. I mean, that's that. I think football salaries should be guaranteed a little bit more because they sign those wild deals, which mean nothing. And then if a guy has a bad year, you just cut him or whatever. But the latest update from uh... like if a guy rides a motorcycle and wrecks it or something like that, I don't think they should. The team should be on the hook for it. Uh, the, the latest update is that Blake has suffered a broken hand. His early timetable is four to six weeks, uh, which will put him back with about 11 games left in the season. How's their team doing? How are they doing? Uh, they are a very good team in the NBA. Uh, they are competing. Obviously, they're not at the level of Golden State, who's whatever in four. Yeah, and, tied for the tied for the record at this point. And then there's the Spurs, who are whatever in six. It's nuts. And uh, then I think we got we got them next. I think in the West, I will double check. But I just looked at the NBA standings. Is that good for the league? It is right. Yeah, Golden the Clippers State are uh, Clippers are twenty eight and sixteen, uh, which I guess would make them f- fourth. But yeah, Golden State, uh, the Spurs. That's good for the league, right? Like yeah. everyone, everyone always claims... Aranda's the best record ever? How I mean, could that be bad? Everyone always claims to want parity. That's what I mean. But I think people really like dynasties. I think people like super good teams. Yeah, and I mean, it's not like they're five championships in yet. It's only the second season well, of right. the teams. Yeah, but they're, I mean, they're incredible. Like, yeah, they're 41-4. and four. They're 21-0 at home. Didn't they just... They beat the Spurs last night, right? Yeah, they crushed the Spurs. Like Curry didn't even play the second half, I heard. Crushed the Spurs. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> The final score, I can probably check. Not that it matters by now, but it was, it was a extensive beating. Yeah, anyway, the reason... <laughs> it's funny because of Blake Griffin. But, uh, yeah, the reason I asked about how the Clippers are doing is because that's the type of injury you hear about like when a team is going really bad that's supposed to be good. Like, right. A guy just losing his cool because the temp, I mean, the season, the expectations. and just They not... won by 30 last night. Yeah, that's nuts. Yep. It's insane. Yeah, so it's interesting. You look at the NBA playoff standings, and you got Cleveland, who's thirty-one and twelve in the East, and the next best team is twenty-nine and fifteen, which is Toronto. I don't know if I would have guessed that. Atlanta is third, Chicago fourth, Boston's fifth, Detroit is sixth, Miami seventh, and then just in under the cut line is Indiana, and then in the West you have Golden State, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, Clippers. Memphis, Dallas, Houston, and Sacramento. So, all right. Third thing, the NHL has reached its All-Star break, essentially. Okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the NHL at the All-Star break. And leading the league in goals, Don, is? Uh, I would say Ovechkin, but I'm going to say Kane. Patrick Kane, leading the League in assists is it's gotta be Kane. Patrick Kane. So that means leading the league in points. Also Kane. Is Patrick Kane seventy three to fifty eight. Yeah, the most amazing thing we had a discussion or argument, however you want to frame it, about Beret versus Ovechkin in the, the <laughs> lose lose argument. Well the thing way. I came back to a lot was like how did they compare to the players in their era? And like Kane what he's doing is unreal. Like nobody comes close to those numbers. These are the numbers from like, like he's never come close to these numbers. He's, and he's been an amazing player. It, this season is is just unbelievable when you look at his numbers. I was blown away last week. You when know what's I really interesting? Is actually, looked at him. the league average in goals scored is four point seven per game. No, like 
per team per player. Oh, okay. okay like the the total goals scored for a player <laughs> in the league is four point seven. It's a weird stat. I wonder how they get to that. Like you have to play a certain amount of games to even be eligible. Probably there's probably yeah. a qualifying number, and then four point seven. Yeah, he's well above. That. Well above. Uh, the assist average is seven point nine. He's at forty three. Uh, Kane is also a plus twenty four, which is good enough for third. Uh, the goals against average leader you'll never get. It's John Gibson in Anaheim. James Reiner Reimer is second Holtby third Save percentage leader Reimer as well I hope that I'm assuming NHL.com That there's a qualifier for these Uh, Holtby leads the league in wins Certain number of games yeah. With 30 Uh, Corey Crawford 7 shutouts Uh, Standings wise uh, Is the Elsa break usually this late in the season? Do they usually go I about think 15? the game is usually always played, you know, the week in between. Oh, the Super Bowl. Right. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, Florida would be first in the Atlantic. Uh, Washington first in the Metropolitan. I can't believe the NHL has a division called the Metropolitan. <laughs> uh, but Washington leads that. Uh, the wild cards right now are... Ugh, Tampa Bay and New Jersey. Let's hope that somehow Pittsburgh or Montreal can find themselves and work back into the wild card. That might be the most interesting All Star break stat ever. The team that almost started ten and zero uh, is not in a playoff spot. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We might have to have the Canadians argument again. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> not much of an argument there. Carey Price went down, and well, they right. can't win. Right. I mean, that holds. That's true to your argument a little bit too. Is, is like that Carey Price is on the team? Right. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it strengthens your argument that beyond Gary Price, there's not a whole lot there. Uh, the Blackhawks lead the Central Division. Los Angeles leads the Pacific. And Minnesota and Colorado lead the, the wild cards with. I'm sure advanced stat guys are loving that the Kings are back on top. Because that was kind of their. They're the fluky team last, last year that year. didn't get in. Yeah, they missed on t- entirely. And they might have led the league in some of those advanced stats. I like to see Colorado in again. I know they were the team that advanced that people hated a few years ago. Them and Calgary. Calgary yeah, was Cal- last year. Colorado yeah, yeah. was the year before that. Yeah. Yeah. They scored a ton. So that's the NHL at the break. Anything surprising you? Yeah, and Buffalo's probably 30th or 29th, and it doesn't matter to me. No. I uh, got two points again last I night. remember seeing a bet between uh, John Warrow. He's a writer, but I think he's an AP guy, not a Buffalo News guy. So he's not automatically one of the guys that has to be grumpy about it. But And a radio guy here, and the bet was, I think, 20 points better. I think they're on pace for about that. So they might be dead last and 20 points better this year. So I'm okay with that. It's not a cool stat to hear that the Sabres could potentially finish with the worst record three years in a row or whatever it would be. But I don't know. if, Like you said, at the beginning of the year, if – you told me that they're bad because Reinhardt and Eichel and like Gergensen's or Ristolainen don't look good. Then I'd be worried, but all those guys look good. So right, and those are like the guys Mike that'll... said, it's the veterans around them that have failed the team. Yep. And like I said to Mike, which I thought was my best point, is that the team I'm kind of looking at is Florida, who are four top five picks into development now. Sure, and here they are leading a division. And don't get me wrong, I always hated that. Like I hated that the Chicago Blackhawks were the model franchise. Not that I had anything against the Blackhawks, but I hated that like you just had to tank. Well, you hated that your team was a middler, not one of well, those. Well, right, right, right. I mean, I don't like the idea that that's how you reward picks. I mean, that's a to- that's a totally different. And they've 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 switched it. 
I mean, right, sure. 30th only guarantees the Sabres, I think, the fourth pick or something this year. Right. But, so. I mean, I think it's foolish to middle. So, I mean, if, if that's the way the system is, you got to play the system that, that is in front of you. All right. Real quick. Yeah. Uh, the Australian Open, I've actually been watching it a little bit. Yeah, Serena. My one last. Uh, uh, the Russian girl. Yeah, Sharapova again. Sharapova. Yeah. 18 straight. I was going to make a comment about that for like my one last thing. It's kind of a hack comment, but it was like a big deal. I can't remember who started it, but like the grunting, particularly with the women. Yeah. Was it Steffi Graf maybe was the first one? I, or No, I want to say that it was Martina Hingis. Hingis. Okay, one of them. Might have been Graf, yeah. It was a big, big deal back then. Like that had to be the mid-90s or so. Yeah. And that was going on. And it's just, I happen to catch it because it's on at a weird time and I mean, whatever, it's on all damn day it seems like so yeah because it's on live it's on tape delay it's right. always on yeah. so I, i'll flip it on and it's unreal how much the the women especially grunt and i know it's a hack point but even one of the commentators made a question about it and the female that was also doing the commentating was just like you just got to accept it like that's just it's just it is what it is now but i did watch some of the sharapova uh venus Game. No, Serena. Or Serena, sorry. Uh, they almost seem like they do it like aggressively, like almost at each other. And I was a little surprised by that. And I don't know, maybe they would say that they're pumping themselves up when like she hits a good shot and she's like, come on. But it's it's intense. It was For someone that doesn't watch a lot of tennis, when you see that, it's, it's jarring. Especially because I remember back in the 90s when it was such a big deal that like they, they were like, was it a, they were, I think they might have even made a rule about it. Yeah, not being enforced, apparently. No, not at all. All right. We will take a break and come back with our first guest. All right, our next guest is from New Orleans, Louisiana, and is a graduate of Brown He's a writer and executive editor for Slate Magazine and is the host of the Hang Up and Listen podcast. He's also famous uh, for coining a phrase. It was when he realized that the Hang Up and Listen podcast won the same award as the sportscaster. He was quoted as saying, who the hell are the sportscasters? Of course, it made him famous. He's making his first appearance on the show today. A warm welcome to Josh Levine. How's it going, Josh? I made a little joke there. That's great. Well, yeah, I, did a um, bit with a I just feel more comfortable knowing that you can read my thoughts. <laughs> so that means I don't really have to say anything for the whole show, and it'll still be transmitted somehow. No, I was reading in your bio or somewhere, or looking at stuff online, that you created like some kind of defense, the Shaggy defense or something. Um, so I yes, said, oh, very true. I should say that he created a different thing, and it was who are we? But yes, we did win the yeah, same this- award once. Uh, congratulations. Yes, congratulations <laughs> to you as well. <laughs> um, well, great. Well, that puts us kind of on the same uh, level we can speak as peers, having both won the same award. Yes, and I've been stressing out all day because um, I read your name several times as one thing. And then, you know, I was like listening to some shows today and realized that the way I read it was not how it's pronounced. So I was like, oh my God, I better not blow it and say how it's pronounced. Or say how it, I read it in my head as to how it's pronounced, but I think I, I, I did get it. I think so. 
going to try to say you totally it. came through in the clutch. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try um, to say it a limited number of times here on out, so I don't blow it. It was flawless. Yeah, there's um, there's a writer named Dan Levy. I don't know if you know him, but uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's he had one of the best sports podcasts of all time called On the DL, and then he, he went, did, yeah. yeah, and then he went to Bleacher Report, and, then, and uh, I would notoriously always call him Levy instead of Levy. And he's a good was a good sport and a good butt about it. And then finally, after getting it wrong several times over the course of a year or two, I said, "Why is this so hard? It's just like Marv Levy, but his he's Dan." So I started thinking him as like a son of Marv Levy, uh, growing up in Buffalo. I haven't screwed it up since. But. So then you just started calling him Marv Levy. <laughs> yes, or uh, the son of the son of Marv uh, Levy is on the show today. So. And Marv was a uh, Ivy Leaguer as well, just like yourself, a brown guy. Um, well, Marv, I'm on Marv the same was level a Harvard him guy. Too. Yeah. I mean, we can we can all speak as peers. Yeah, awesome. my brother was a Yale guy, so I can kind of get in there on, on the Ivy League thing too. I went to an Ivy League graduation last year. <laughs> awesome! It was, it was I don't know if you have the same experience with your show, but it happens so often where um, we're preparing to talk about a topic, and it gets to the time when you're going to say somebody's name, whether they're a Russian pole vaulter or something else. And you're just like, Oh my God, I like prepared very thoroughly. <laughs> and I'm going to sound totally unprofessional Yep. because there are like 18 consecutive vowels here. I don't know what to say. And I, f- I do feel bad mispronouncing people's names because it happens to me and I, I can empathize. And then you're just like in that moment and you're just like, there's no way I can I can get myself out of this. Got myself in this situation. Hopefully, it won't happen again. And then it inevitably happens next week. Right. And I live in paranoia of that because one, we're you know we're an independent show, relatively unknown, and I'm asking someone usually out of the blue to do this, and they're being kind to me by agreeing and coming on. They're doing me a, a, a nice thing. They're being very kind to me, and I'm screwing up the most basic thing of their existence, their name. You know what I mean? And that's just it's not it's not cool. It's bad. So. Um, it's like, but then when, when, what people who probably don't do this don't realize is that when you're sitting down and you're going to do it, you're, while that music, while your music was playing, while that, while that Brown fight song was playing, I was thinking, okay, maybe we'll talk about this first or this first or that first. And eventually you just got to kind of focus on the name (laughs) at the very end. Yeah. So one thing that that I really admire about, uh, Mark Marin as an interviewer and Mm -hmm. what I think is um, really his best skill, and you'll appreciate this as a podcast host, is that he is able to listen to what his guests say better than any other host. And And if you've been a guest, I'm sure you've had the experience where you say something to the host, and then the host, the next comment or question that they make, it's like they didn't even hear what you just said, um, because either they're reading off a script or there's just something else that they want to get to. But the kind of genius of his show and something that I really admire and aspire to do on our show is the ability to like kind of talk about everything that you want to talk about while also having an organic conversation and just building those questions that you want to ask out of the responses that the guest gives. But it's so hard to listen and like look, look at what you've done for your preparation and it's it's something that I still struggle with and having done the show for a long time. Yeah, we had that little bit of static kickback in there. I think I figured out why it's happening. Um, 
Yeah, and you know, like I know you studied um, computers and history at Brown. I studied communication uh, in college, and it's like the first thing they teach you in day one is listening. You know that the only way you're going to be good at interviewing is by listening. It's like almost number one thing, and it's one of the hardest things. Um, it seems so, so, so benign and obvious, but. You know, especially when you're by yourself. I mean, and that's why I do envy sometimes bigger podcasts. It's like, you know, even like uh, we're really good friends with Richard Dykes from Sports Illustrated. He's been really good to us over the years. And we were talking about our shows. And, you know, I was telling him one huge advantage you have is you have a producer with you. And most of the time on my own. So I have to look at levels, worry about a static, check the computer, make sure everything's recording while I'm trying to listen and be engaging and give a fair You're just giving me anxiety just hearing about that. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you know, it's a balancing act, but, um, you know, like I said, you just try to, I don't know. I don't think anyone goes onto a podcast and think he's in the Howard Stern show or something though either. So I think there's a little, yeah, it's just that, um, I I think if you do it for a while, you just admire people who do it well. Not that, not that it, not that it's like the most difficult thing in the world. And I think that people understand that you need to listen. It's it's less about knowing that's what you need to do and more about how to do it in practice, how to implement it when you are thinking about other stuff. And when, you know, I do show our show, Hang Up and Listen with Mike Peska and Stefan Satsis, and it's great to have those guys um, on the show with me. They ask different sorts of questions. They take conversation in interesting places that I wouldn't have anticipated. But you also have to be careful as part of a panel that, you're paying attention to the conversation when it's not your turn to talk, that you're not just like looking at your notes or thinking about what am I going to say next? Because um, again, like if you want to make the conversation flow and make it sound like real people talking and having this like authentic experience together, you can't be just like noodling around and like surfing the internet when the other people are talking. Right. I was going to ask you about the show too. And do you guys have, to kind of go off that, do you guys have like off-air signals to each other while you're doing an interview? Like, hey, I, I got the next one over here. You're like pointing at each other or like tapping each other on the leg so you're not stepping on each other and things like that? Well, Pesca is in New York and, and Stefan and I are in D.C. So Stefan and I are pointing at each other yeah. all the time. And then hoping not to stop uh, on the guy in New York. <laughs> yeah, it's challenging. Um, some people uh, do kind of video chats, I guess, or they'll, right. they'll be up on Skype or whatever so that they can point at each other, even from distant locations. We've never tried that. We should try that. Um, that'd be interesting. But it is better when we're all in the same room, and it kind of it kind of stinks that we have to be in two separate locations, because it does make it hard to tell when somebody wants to pipe up and, and make a point. But, you know, it, the mix of the show is good. The three people you know, we, we work well together and it's worth um, doing even though we're not all in the same place. You know, I'm a lifelong radio nerd. I was a huge, I still am a huge Howard Stern fan. I was a huge fan of sports radio. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I have done less and less since doing this podcast and, and trying to do it somewhat seriously is that I don't listen to as much sports content anymore because I'm so afraid of saying what other people say and I was listening I listened to like four or five episodes of your show today including the latest one and uh my partner and I had recorded our segments yesterday um mm-hmm. and when we were talking about the Super Bowl we were making some you know we made some of the points you guys made because 
well, I think for one, we're all just, you know, football fans watching the game and just throwing out some things that we said. Um, but it does, it, I think it's a lot like comics. I think comics, I often hear them say, you know, I don't listen to comics that much because I don't want what they say to be in my head or, or whatever. Um, and I know there's a thing right now, like with uh, Amy Schumer and this parallel thinking and um, all that. But um, what do you think it is about Hang Up and Listen? Like, what do you think you guys have tapped into? Because it's such a popular show, and, and it's so well-respected, and um, it is a real easy listen. It's real calm. I kind of admired the calmness of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just admired that. It just felt really relaxed and calm. Like, do you think that's what you guys tapped into? Is it something else? Like, what, why do you think it's such a – why do you think it works? Well, I kind of consciously wanted to do something different and what I heard on commercial sports radio. And I can really appreciate the challenge of what um, commercial sports radio hosts have to do. I can, I can appreciate it kind of intellectually, but I can't even imagine having to do it, do a like three or four hour show every day and sort of what the imperatives are when it comes to like trying to hook people so they don't change the dial. Um, and so I'm not trying to say that we're like, you know, better or smarter than anyone who has to face those challenges. Cause I think we have it a lot easier than they do. It's just that the kinds of things they have to do in that environment are not necessarily the things that appeal to me as a listener, kind of recapitulating a lot of the same arguments over and over again, doing sorts of debates about which player is better, um, is somebody overrated, is somebody clutch, the sorts of things that, um, you know, inflame people or, you know, the kind of stuff that you hear on first take, just the kind of very, like, simple, um, simple-minded debates that can be fun, you know, if you're, like, having a, you know, bantering at a bar or something, but it's just, like, not the, mo- the most stimulating conversations that you can have about sports. And so I think Mike and Stefan and I all approached it um, in that way and are, are kind of on that wavelength and wanted to talk more about the bigger issues that come up in sports, whether they're, you know, the, the ways that it intersects with culture and politics, along with just being fans and appreciating the game um, and not, you know, not trying to over-intellectualize, but just trying to have conversations that I felt are the ones that I had with, with my friends, people, you know, who are smart um, and the kinds that I just didn't feel like I was hearing on, um, on other shows. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was looking, I was listening to shows and looking on the website and I read the Brian Curtis piece, which I loved. I love Brian Curtis. I think he's one of the great stars who emerged out of Grantland. And, I was kind of just thinking about about you and what your day might be like, what your week might be like, and maybe you're working on something that you're writing, maybe you're editing all day. And I was wondering when it came to the podcast, was that like the fun part, or was that the the stressful part, or was it just kind of all the same? Well, first of all, Brian, he was really my mentor. Uh, he edited sports at Slate when I started here back in 2003, so we worked together for many years and you know as you said he's just 
kind of the best thinker that we have about sports media and is just like super well read on the subject and has this really encyclopedic knowledge of the history of sports journalism. And um, so I've had a lot of fun working with him and talking with him about this stuff over the years. Uh, so, so he kind of set me off on that path a long time ago. But the podcast is really fun for me. And coming in with a writing background, I didn't start doing the podcast at Slate until I'd been um, in the job for maybe six years. And so it took me a while to get comfortable with it. I don't know if you had the same experience where, I don't know if it was a year or that's probably in the ballpark um, where it took um, you know me to feel comfortable like I wasn't yeah, you kind of settle in. nervous what, that I wasn't nervous talking to guests and I just it just felt like I was having a conversation with you know my friends Mike and Stefan about whatever um, so once I, once I hit that point then it was just kind of all fun it's just a really good way to break up the week you know as I'm writing and editing and um, as you know as you said before in terms of like it just kind of being out out there in this public facing way where I write some, but I'm also like an editor. So behind the scenes, but it's nice to like have people be able to hear you. And, um, you know, when people say that they like the show or, you know, it just, it feels different than people saying that they like something you write. It's almost like they're saying they like you, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. um, it's, it's just, a, it's kind of like affirming, in a different way. It's just a, it's a cool feeling when people say that they listen to your show and like your show. It's really flattering and, and nice. I remember when we first started, it was like, um, Jeff Passon was the first guest and love Jeff. Yeah. And he's great. And he, he's another guy. I mean, he's been on 13 times or something since, I mean, it's just, he's been a real friend of the show. And, um, and I think we had good timing in two, we started in 2011 and there wasn't quite as many podcasts as there is now. And, but I think it was right around the time where people were starting to get comfortable with doing them. It didn't feel as weird, you know, to get a request wasn't as strange. And then, you know, Richard Deitch was really early and then Joe Poznanski was like on the sixth show and everything was just going. And I, it took me a while to like, to not be in awe of it. Cause I just didn't know that those people would want to come on. Like I just, yeah. I didn't even think that that would be a possibility. I didn't think that, that people I respected that much as writers would want to do it. I did. I had, and it's, it's for no other reason than I just didn't know until I asked. So I think it did take for me a while, but then once I got used to the idea that, Hey, these guys come on and they, then they come on again and they maybe even enjoyed a little bit that I kind of settled in, I think a little bit. And I listened to those because, Rarely, but if I listen to some of those early shows, I think, oh man, too bad you just didn't settle down a little bit. So you so, think that the issue with the early shows was that you're just kind of in awe of? The I think so. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. Yeah, and I think I think the turning point was uh, Duff McKagan, the bass player for Guns N' Roses. He was writing a a column for ESPN uh, Sports. Right, I remember that. Column. Yeah, and I just thought of the idea to email ESPN and see if Duff would want to come on and talk. Um, and he agreed. And this like happened like at the end of a week and we had planned to do it on Tuesday. And then on that Monday, uh, the rock and roll hall of fame announced that guns and roses was going to be inducted that year. 
And I had no idea if this would have been a slick trick of me to... But there was so much speculation right away. Would they play together? Would Axel and Slash both yeah. go? And it just so happened that that next day he was going to be on. And I kind of think I just... Since I kind of lucked into basically Duff's first interview post-Hall of Fame, which is basically what it turned out to be as far as I can tell from anything. I haven't seen anything earlier. I'd have to ask him. Maybe he did do something, but... You know, and the Guns N' Roses fans shut us down. We had to wait a month. They used so much bandwidth listening to him. You know, <laughs> I, I just kind of think that at that point, I was like, okay, that was the biggest thing we're going to do. So just relax now, I think. Um, well, you know, I you don't want to have a complete set of, of Gunners. <laughs> yeah, I, can't, how can you stop when you I mean, yeah, I, mean, I don't think Axel's going to come on. I, someone asked me before, I think <laughs> me and Jimmy Traynor were talking about booking guests from Fox. I'm dropping so many names like such a loser, but I, I don't mean to be. It's just kind of coming up in the conversation. We were doing, I should have just said, we were doing an interview before, and someone was asking me, uh, because we were talking about booking and how hard it can be to book sometimes, the podcast, and yeah. the challenges of that, which I was going to ask you about, and you can talk about it right after this quick quick anecdote but uh i w- he asked me who kind of my dream thing was and i'm a huge program guy and i said well you know i don't really think eddie vetter is going to come on but i th- i could conceive of a of a way that mike mccready would come on so i said i guess i'll put that as my number one and it was kind of like i i always knew howard stern was never going to come on but when Artie lang did it was like okay well Artie lang was on i mean he was the number two guy in that show essentially for eight years and you know, that was amazing that he did that, yeah. that time, you know. And, and Artie Lang was funny, too, because you could tell the first three minutes that he was in the midst of, like, one of those sit down for eight hours and do ten-minute spots, like, in a row and in a row and in a row. <laughs> and you could, I could kind of feel myself slightly winning him over as it went on, you know. And, and, like, so that was fun. But, yeah, what about booking for you? Do you book it? Do you guys book it together? Do you guys have someone else who books it? And what about the challenge of booking these shows with people who – other people find interesting it's a mix um i do a lot of it stefan does some of it too um just depends on kind of who we have relationships with the challenge for us is that we release our show on monday evenings we record it on monday mornings pretty much without fail and we don't tape at any other times except monday mornings just because of the challenge of getting us all together at the same time. It's just like not going to work any other time during the week. That's the time we have blocked off. And so a lot of the times people are like, yeah, I'd love to do an interview with you guys. Let's do it on Tuesday. Like, <laughs> damn, <laughs> I know why, why can't you fit into my like extremely small window that I, that I have for you. So that's just, that's the only frustration. I've, I think we've had a pretty similar experience to you where people are generally pretty generous with their, time and are like often flattered that you want to interview them. Um, There are obviously some exceptions of people who don't really, you know, know, whatever. People don't don't want to do the show. I don't uh, hold it against them with uh, some exceptions. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, as far as booking goes, I mean, you know, we generally try to stick more with journalists and, um, you know, rather, rather than interviewing athletes. Yeah. Or, we barely do any athletes. They just, they don't want to say anything really. We do like to talk to kickers. Kickers <laughs> are good. 
ones who like wrote books sometimes because you can press them on the stuff they wrote in the book. Sometimes we like, like John Smoltz was on right after his book, mm-hmm. and I felt like it went really well because I had thirty stories that I could hold them to talk about that were in the book anyway. <laughs> you know, I like, sometimes it's tough. Read the story that yeah. you wrote about. It's sometimes it's tough to get get something out of a guy, um, especially the athletes because they're trained to be so guarded. You know, my brother was a D1 athlete at Yale, and it's like. At talking to him after the hockey, after his games, it'd be like he'd be talking to me like I was the media sometimes. I'd be like, "Dude, it's me right now." You know, you could just tell me like what what happened here, what happened there, what you think about this. But they're just trained. Right. I mean, you want to have a guest where you're not like having to fight to pull stuff out of right. them. You want yeah. people who like want to talk to you and and want to tell you what they know. And sometimes, like we had Steve Nash on. Um, he had done the finish line series of documentary shorts for Grandland, uh, which he had done with uh, John Hawk and other folks at, at ESPN, John Hawk, the documentarian. He's a good friend of ours, and we've had on a bunch of times. And so kind of through that relationship, we were able to have a conversation with Nash. And he's just a very thoughtful dude. And I think given the like frankness of that documentary, like you kind of said with Smoltz, there was he had just like participated in something where he was pouring his right. heart out, and yeah. so you sort of knew going in that this would be a conversation about stuff. Like, like it wasn't like uh, you have somebody on because they want to pitch like some product, and then hopefully, well, like everyone's going to uh, do the you, next couple of weeks, Super Bowl week, yeah, yeah, Radio yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't think we've ever done we've I've ever done, done one of those, so yeah. I can't. I, I don't really know in practice how those work but yeah it's like exactly it's yeah. it's the opposite of that where somebody is going on for like the exact opposite reason of why you want to talk to them so it's just this like push and pull like that is something i don't particularly want to get involved with yeah and like i feel the same way but then every super bowl like i'll be watching i guess it won't happen this year as he doesn't have a simulcast anymore but i'd be watching mike and the mad dog or francesa or something and they'll get that yeah. one guy each week each year that i'm like all right, I'd probably pimp razors to have him on. You know, like Drew Brees comes down Radio Row, and he'll talk to me for 10 minutes about the Saints and 10 minutes about a razor. I guess I'll do the 10 minutes on a razor, you know. Sure, why not? You know, I mean, for that, I'd probably do it, you know. But, yeah, in general. Um, and it's easy, again, like like what I was saying before, it's kind of easy for me to be high-minded about all this because we're, like, late, you know. I'm not, I'm not like, uh, you know, Mike and Mike or something. I don't have the same kinds of it's a different kind of audience and we have a lot fewer hours to fill and um so it's not like i'm taking some sort of like moral stand here like if it's perfectly fine to do those interviews it's just like kind of a different thing than what we do on our show the sports guests are here with josh levine from slate and hang up and listen podcast Uh, we're burning through the time really quick so I want to get to just a couple other things real quick. I want to know a little bit about Josh real quick. So you grew up in uh, NOLA, and you came out east for college. How, how did you get to Brown? Why did you decide uh, to travel to Rhode Island for college? Uh, I just wanted to go somewhere different. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to see uh, other parts of the world get out of my uh, Louisiana home. Although, in retrospect, it's kind of a great place to live. Do you go home a lot? I do, yeah, a couple times a year. My folks are 
down there. And I live in D.C. now, which is a great place to live. I really like it here. But um, very different, almost the opposite of New Orleans and a lot of different ways. And, you know, if you want to talk about the Saints, I'm happy to talk about the Saints. We could transition <laughs> from this. But that, but that's a um, that's something that uh, I think is pretty stark that I've noticed is that people here root for uh, Dan Snyder's team. That, right. that there There is a constituency here. But the kind of... Um, like unanimity that you get in New Orleans around the Saints, like when they're, especially when they're playing well, like on a Sunday when you'll see everybody in their gear and stuff and you just feel like everybody is kind of all behind the same thing and you just feel the kind of like, that it's like the pulse of the city. It's like very cool and, and you just will never get anything like that here just because people come from so many different places right and buffalo and is very much that's a, like that's that a great thing about about washington is that you meet people from around the world and it draws in people from everywhere but it's just you don't get that same experience yeah i think buffalo is a lot like that too um and it's nice to be able to take and baltimore is too which is you know close to here around yeah. their teams yeah it's nice to be able to take part of that with the sabers since i don't with the bills um but um I think it was Simmons and Sale who gave a huge – they're talking on their podcast kind of about what you just were. And they gave a huge plug to the video, which I'm sure you've watched many times, of the one bar in New Orleans right before Porter picks it off and then mm-hmm. through the pick. And the, it's, it's the YouTube video that starts with like 40 years of frustration erased with one pick. And it's in that one bar. And they're talking about like the euphoria in that video and – um and uh, just, like, how rare it is for a fan base to really be at that level. Um, there was some euphoria oh. in my house with that interception. Yeah, tell me tell me um, about your, your Tracy Porter story. What were you up to that day? <laughs> I was probably writing about it. So <laughs> I, I was uh, not, like, in 100% mm. fan mode. I... I remember, like, uh, shouting. There was some shouting. Yeah. I did get to go to the uh, NFC Championship game against the Vikings, which was awesome. That's really sweet. Um, to be in the Dome for that. And that, as a Saints fan, I mean, obviously winning the Super Bowl was um, the bee's knees, but being in in the Dome to see them make the Super Bowl, that was really the, the moment, the place to be. Because, that was, you know, in New Orleans, among your people, and that was just such a weird like cathartic sort of game with, you know, the Vikings and Brett Favre looking like they're going to drive for the winning score at the end. And, um, so, you know, he got it's a long five and, minutes. and then yeah. the crazy like overtime with mm. the fourth downs and stuff. So, yeah. Um, so that was just like a kind of lifetime experience there. Yeah. I talked to Buck about that game, calling that game. Yeah. What and, did he say? Oh, he said just like, you know, the uniqueness of the atmosphere. He told a story about how he set it up. He's like, you know, Mike Pereira was in the booth with us that day, and I told him I'd have a friend, and he was going to be sitting behind there. Actually, it might have been a different ref. It was like the same idea, but it was before they had Pereira. And the friend was Kate Hudson, so we had a little story about that and kind of said how he's friends with Kate Hudson, and she was there that day. And uh, (laughs) You know, I was kind of telling him about his call because I played it right before I brought him on, the call of the kick. And I remember, you know, you kind of talked about kind of waiting for the Favre narrative to play out there at the end. 
and kind of just waiting for their walk-off field goal. That's kind of the attitude I had while I was watching. And you get that second life, and you get down, and you know you're about to kick, and all I could think about was the Tampa Bay game because that was only like five weeks earlier, and Hartley had just missed that kick. I mean, he had just missed it in the sa- almost the exact same spot like five weeks ago against Tampa Bay, and that was a no-big-deal game. I mean, we would have clinched everything that day, and that would have been nice. We ended up clinching the next day anyway when the Vikings lost. But, like, I just remember just, like, almost not even looking at the TV. Like, that that moment, I almost missed it in a way because I was so paralyzed by my nerves in that moment. And, Field goals do that to people. Yeah. I, I, my dad is the same way where he can't – often be in the room when the field goal is happening. I felt everyone... Something about field goal. <laughs> yeah. I felt everyone reacting around me and, like, kind of realizing, like, oh, okay, well, this happened for me. Like, this is going to happen. It's two weeks of about being about your team instead of two weeks about being about the team that beat your team in your dream season. Um, but Tracy Porter was a lot different for me because right before... The Vikings game, I I had some surgery. I've had Crohn's disease for a long time. I had a little Crohn's surgery. So I knew I was going to be home, and pretty much everyone that I cared about um, came to my house to watch the championship game and then came again to the Super Bowl and um, were real supportive and great to me. And the only person really that I can say that I really, really care about that wasn't there for that moment was my brother who was in playing junior hockey in the USHL, so he was in South Dakota. But, um, yeah, like I was standing for Tracy Porter. I was, you know, my mom had assigned my brother to kind of stand next to me for the whole playoffs to kind of make sure nothing would happen to ruin my stitches, uh, you know, to keep me calm, kind of almost like to sit on me (laughs) sort of, you know, and we were both just, I was just sort of standing. I remember there was an injury, so we're waiting for the commercial on second down, you know, waiting, just waiting for him to come back and then they come back and. You know, I just I saw him pick it off, and that was when I kind of I kind of let it out. I, I jumped my I jumped up, and my brother like kind of caught me, kind of like harnessed me a little bit, and it was just fun. And everyone, my my buddy, his wife, she's a flute player, and I contracted her to be there that day. Contract is a joke, but she came that day with her trumpet and played when the Saints come marching in every time we scored. You know, so that that was going on, and everyone was very much excited. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah so your memories are way f- more. Uh, Specific than mine. Yeah, I just remember the kind of broad emotion of uh, joy and uh, uh, not thinking that it would happen and being pleasantly surprised. Do you still believe in Breeze and Peyton? Still be- believe in this duo? Do you still think we can, yeah, even if it's not a Super Bowl, have another season where we believe these guys might get to that spot? Well, I don't really think they've done anything to uh, make me not believe in them. They're not yeah. the issue, are they? Yeah. No, what no, what no. did they do wrong? Yeah, no, I'm with you. But there's just, a, you know, <laughs> all year I've read columns. But they have like the know. top five offense and yeah. maybe worst defense in NFL history. So yeah. I think that, uh, that that they're not the issue. It does really piss me off. Like, um, It's weird you, you get in this position where you have like kind of deeply held beliefs about fairness and and sports and how things should work that are challenged when you like kind of let your fandom get in the way. Um, But like Breeze's contract, how everybody's like, Oh, the reason that the team um, doesn't succeed is because he gets Uh, paid too much, which I just think is the 
most absurd so dumb. thing ever. But mm-hmm. it's just like, it, it's true that the Seahawks, part of the reason for their success was, you know, before Russell Wilson got paid, he was like making less than, you know, but people forget that Charlie Whitehurst or whoever was like the third string quarterback, and it just allows you to pay more. Right, but we never had other spots on your team. We never had Breeze at that level. We had to overpay him to get him to come in two thousand six. I mean, it might yeah, not have been right. a twenty twenty million dollar cap hit or whatever, but it was still he was. We never had like a six hundred thousand dollar quarterback on a rookie deal that we won with. You right, know, but it, it wasn't. You know, that. the people that are talking about how you know he's being and 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 people do make this argument that he's hurting the team for not redoing his deal or for, you know, they weren't saying the same thing about how the saints were being unfair to him when the structure of his deal was that he was getting this like microscopic comparatively base salary in the early years of this latest contract and that it's like backloaded. So like, it's like his fault that the team signed him to this deal. Anyway, I think salary cap, just the salary cap in all sports is, bad and wrong and makes fans like sympathize with owners and and you know attack players who are not even getting like what they would get in a total free market system but i'm getting off on like a non-saints related tangent here yeah and i mean people just need to realize that it's the dead money contracts that are hurting the saints and not breezes it's the junior galat contract and the what we still have to pay for jimmy graham and all the other bad signings that our dead money on the cap now that that's hurting them. It's not paying our quarterback. Um, Josh, Fair enough. Josh is at Twitter. You can find him. He's at Josh underscore L E V I N. Um, and of course, slate.com. You can go there. I spent a lot of time there today. Really enjoyed it. Loved reading Brian Curtis in case you listen to him on the show last week and want to see something new from him. Josh, Brian, can I put in a plug for another story. Yeah, absolutely. We had, uh, Tommy Craig's right about Cam Newton, which was a a, a great story. Yeah, read if, that uh, today. Mm-hmm. If your listeners are Craig's fans, but he's the you know one of the best, if not the best, sports writers of this or any generation, and his piece was great, and I was really happy to have it on Slate. Yeah, you can find those pieces on Slate for sure. Uh, you can also listen to the podcast. This week's podcast, the most recent one, has a sportscaster's favorite, John Wertheim. Uh, on the podcast. Also, a beat writer from Cleveland is on this week. And, of course, Josh and his partners talking about the games. One of the partners wasn't there this week. We'll have to go back a week, I think, to listen to all the three of them together. Uh, but certainly you can do that on the podcast app. And uh, You guys on Stitcher and all the other places? or We are, yeah. yeah and yeah. Um, you can look at our our uh, archive of shows on uh, slate.com slash hangup. Um, you can find us on iTunes and, and Slate Plus. You find podcasts or our fans. Yeah, you can plug Slate Plus too. If you want to look, there's extra segments with Slate Plus and extra content there for a very reasonable price. Yes. Yes, so Slate Plus is there as well. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I could go yeah, all, I really all day. It. I'm sure you want to get some dinner, do some other things. Do you have any questions for me? Before I let you go, is there anything you need to settle between? Why you? are you a Saints fan? Well, <laughs> okay, everybody. Is this, is this okay, well every, okay, everyone who's heard this thirty times, just fast forward two minutes. Um, what happened was, I learned how to read because I heard there was a thing that came to my house called the newspaper that had stuff about the Sabers in it. That's how big of a hockey fan I was when I was two and three and four, and really my whole life. And one and so Sabres and Saints have the same number of letters, and you couldn't <laughs> read that well, so you just got confused? No. So what happened was 
it was a uh, Sunday in September, and the Sabers had a dayish afternoon preseason game, and the Bills also had a NFL game. They played the Dolphins, I remember, and um, I wanted to watch a Sabers game. This was the '80s. We only had one TV at the time. I was not going to get to watch a Sabers game. I had to watch uh, or listen to the Sabers on my radio. In the bedroom, I couldn't understand why this meaningless NHL preseason game didn't get top billing over a Bills game against their rival. Um, And I hated the Bills from that second forward. Had no time for the Bills. Finally, my dad got me to sit down and watch football with him. And the game on the TV was the Saints and Vikings playoff game in 1987. And he told me. Oh, I remember that one. Yep, that and was, he told that me. That was a messed up uh, afternoon. He told me all about the Saints and their history and their losing and the bags and Jim Mora and uh, uh, Finks and Bobby Abair. And this is the first time they're good. And the strike almost screwed up their season. And they're good, but they're not as good as the four. All this stuff. My dad was a good teller of what's going on. And I said, all right, well, let's do it. Let's win. And I think Eric Martin scored a touchdown to. Get a seven nothing lead, and that was a forty eight ten. We lost, and I was crushed, and that was it. That was my; those are my guys. Yeah, was that a Tommy Kramer situation? I think it was case? a Tommy Kramer situation. Yes, and they you you sound like an odd child, but one that I could have probably uh, <laughs> it didn't go over. Hang, hanging out with and, and spending time with. So yeah. it really brought you f- full circle that uh, championship game against. Uh, yeah. The Vikings. Yeah, yeah. And my mom could never believe that it was that. And my mom always believed that it was that she dressed me up in Bill's outfits and somehow as a kid and somehow I had like a vendetta over that. And I always don't know. I didn't, I didn't know you were dressing me up in Bill's outfits as a baby. I don't care about that. But finally, I think she's come to grips that it was just a Sabres versus Bill's thing. And, and then like a couple years later, it was 1989. I got to go to my first Saints and Bill's game. My dad took me and... I don't think my I think my dad was still in a little bit of denial because you know it's not like the NFL ticket era then, you know. So I'm like a Saints fan, like get to watch three games a year and following the ten minute tickers, which was how you got scores at the time during yeah, the games. Of course. Yeah, and uh, you know we got there and I was cheering for the Saints. And my dad's like, "All right, you got to move. You can't sit with me." So he moved me down like six rows, shooed me off. It's a huge it's a huge snowstorm that day at Ralph Wilson Stadium. And John Forcade played that day for the Saints. And the Saints won. And John Forcade is kneeling. And I feel something on my back. And then another thing. And I'm like, oh, man, people are throwing snowballs at me. I better get my dad. And I look, and it's my dad and all his friends. So that was it for me and the Bills officially, if I hadn't already been done with them. So they're mean fans that awesome. threw snowballs at me uh, while John Forcade was kneeling. So. But I have not, um, I've not missed that's, a, that's some classic Saints memories, right? Yeah, there. yeah. I haven't missed a game since '96. I've seen them all since I was wow, 16 well, and old enough. You're, uh, to... you're a better man than I. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe there was some I could have skipped. <laughs> maybe it would have been better for. Yeah, I don't ever. I don't really understand that impulse. Like when when there's this kind of like clucking around, like oh, this you know the fans of whatever team only show up when they're winning. It's like well. You know, uh, I, I, I don't necessarily understand the impulse for self-flagellation. Like, I don't think you should 
be forced to watch a really bad team if you don't want to watch them. I I uh, will allow. I think sometimes thing of games. Sometimes you need the lows to really appreciate the highs, though. I think that Super Bowl was so special. And and I look at I didn't I didn't live in New Orleans. So I'm, I'm not like, saying that I like skipped every. No, game. I know. I'm just I saying know. like yeah. if they're like three and ten, maybe I'll like. Uh, leave the house on a, on a Sunday in, like, week 14. <laughs> no, I can respect that for sure. I understand. I'm never doing that in the Breeze era, though. I mean, I'm never going to miss a game that Drew Breeze is on my team because I never dreamed a guy like him could be on my team. I didn't think – I don't know if I knew an athlete like Drew Breeze existed, and if he did, he'd never be on my team. And the fact that he has been – a man of strong values and morals. Yeah, and the fact that he has been since 2006, I'm going to be the last guy off that ship. Maybe there's some people – in New Orleans who lived through the horrors there right before Drew Brees became a fan. And I would defer to them and understand if they would maybe say they'd stick on the bandwagon a little bit longer. I would think I'd be there holding hands with them till the end. I, I got to think. I don't think you need to defer to anyone. You put in the hard yards, <laughs> my friends. I don't, uh, well, don't tell yourself short. Well, I'll tell you one last story. And I'll let you go. So this very first game of the Saints, Brees, and Peyton era, Luckily, was in Cleveland, Ohio. So I was able to go, and um, it was opening day. I think Colston scored like two touchdowns in that yeah, game. Yeah, he, he scored. Undrafted Colston. If, yeah, and if you recall, the offense hadn't scored a touchdown in the preseason. So there's a lot of nervousness. I didn't know that. Yeah, they hadn't, they hadn't scored. A, the first team offense didn't get a touchdown in the preseason. So a lot of nervousness. So whatever, me and my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, we went to the game. And um, I think I had a... One of us had a McAllister jersey. One of us had a Bush jersey on. I can't remember which was which. Um, and so we're, we park who knows where by the stadium, and we have to walk to the stadium. And their stadium is, like, lower than the city because it's built on the lake. And part of their city is sort of above the lake. I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but if you can picture, a lot of the air, the parking lot might be above the stadium. It might be below it. Anyway, you're walking, and we realize we have to go up this – down this hill – and it's a pretty mm-hmm. narrow path, and it's all cars and tailgates of Browns fans. So I'm like, all right, buckle in. This will be a long walk, you know, because <laughs> like, we're walking right in the heart of the beast here of Browns tailgating. So we get about halfway, and this guy comes running up to me, and he stops me. And he's like, I think I know you, man. And I'm like, no, you don't. He's like, yeah, I think I do. And he, he like, turns to his buddy. He's got like 10 people at his tailgate. It's like, we know this guy, don't we? I'm like, I don't think you know me, man. He's like, yep. I saw you on your roof waving for the helicopter during during Katrina. And I was like, oh, Katrina jokes. I said, this is going to be a longer day than I thought. And I just kind of kept walking. And um, luckily in our section, there was a more, a much more obnoxious Saints fan, a very, very large gentleman that drew all the attention off of us and uh, battled it out with the... But that was a great day to be there. Yes, Colston got his first touchdown. My dog, Colston, is here somewhere. He usually barks on the podcast, but his mom's home, so he's being quiet in the other room. But yes, I don't I- want you to have to run a correction on your podcast because uh, I think I said that he was undrafted. Seventh round draft. Seventh round, yep. We all, we all know that. Yeah, was it 266? Is that right? We don't know that, but we know <laughs> that's wrong. It's in the two hundreds. I know no, that two fifty, two fifty two, two fifty two. Okay, I don't know why two sixty four. Four spots from the end. Four of the draft. from the end. Yes, according Hofstra. to Wikipedia, Hofstra. 
and just another guy that just like I just appreciate the way he does his business. And there's a lot of talk about this with Cam. Play the best player in NFL history never to make the Pro Bowl. I'm I'm going to say that without and he should have any, absolutely... any knowledge of whether that's true or not. I'm no, gonna, it's true. I'm just going to say that. Keep saying in fact. It. He, there was one year especially that he got screwed. To the year that we lost to the 49ers, he absolutely should have been in. I think when you start getting to the Pro Bowl snubs portion of the podcast, <laughs> we should go. To, yeah. <laughs> uh, to end things. All right, Josh. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, again, it's at Josh underscore L-E-V-I-N on Twitter, Slate.com. Hang up and listen on your podcast catcher. And don't forget about Slate Plus for a little bit more. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. All right. So the book club is officially back this week. And we're starting with This Is Your Brain on Sports, The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from the T-Shirt Canon by John Wertheim and Sam Summers. I spoke to Mr. Wertheim. I spoke to the publisher. Two books are on their way to North Tonawanda, New York. One can be yours at some point. We will give one away. And uh, Mr. Wertheim is, of course, at the Australian Open right now. Uh, But upon his return, we will decide if he or he and... Sam Summers will be on the podcast to talk about the book, uh, which made me wonder who is Sam Summers. And luckily, Amazon does have an answer. He is an award-winning journalist, teacher, and researcher of history, (laughs) social psychology at, I don't know, Tufts University. So I would have been my outside of. I don't, uh, New Jersey. Boston, dummy. That was closer. His research specialties include how people think, communicate, and behave in diverse settings, as well as psychological perspectives on the U.S. legal system. So hopefully Mr. Summers will join us. Did you know, Don, at Tufts, he is known for his engaging lecture style <laughs> and has won multiple teaching awards, including being selected by the Student Senate as a Professor of the Year. That's something. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else about him? Oh, in his free time, he enjoys hanging out with... Oh, my God. I don't know. From Boston? Uh, uh, Cam Neal. His wife. Okay. <laughs> and... His dog. Two daughters. And their dog. Uh-huh. Batting leadoff for the vaunted Tufts Psychology Summer Softball Team. And exerting more effort than he probably should, editing Seinfeld and Daily Show clips for use in the lecture classroom. That was close there. Yeah, you got that one. That'd be a hit. Okay. So that is uh, Sam Summers. Now we know. All right, we'll take a break and be right back. All right, our next guest is from Texas and is a Baylor grad. He's making his sixth appearance on the podcast today and is one of the hosts of the Cheap Heat Wrestling Podcast. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our friend David Shoemaker. What's up, man? 
Uh, nothing. I mean, that, the Baylor fight song always gets me motivated, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, get you going, right? So the other one, <laughs> yeah. the other one, this yeah, it, does, it actually doesn't have quite as much resonance for me as I'm sure, like you know, Oklahoma or Texas grads have for their fight songs. When I was at, when I was at Baylor, we've talked about this. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of fight to be had in the sports teams, <laughs> but um, but but it you know it makes me feel good that they're that they're doing something now. Yeah, it's always fun, uh, you know, to tease people a little bit with that stuff too, like. If I have a Harvard guy on, because my brother played hockey at Yale, I'll always like trolling with the clip of Butcher Grass calling the last few seconds of the Yale National Championship game. Or like last week when I had Brian Curtis on, because he's a Texas guy, I played the clip of the Roy Williams uh, <laughs> Superman safety and then went into the Texas fight zone. Yeah, um, you know, a little yeah. If you want like that, here, here's all, all my family. All my family, or most of my family, is in North Carolina. If you if you have any North Carolina people on yeah, and want to want to mess with them, the, uh-huh. the best thing to do is to just when when they say they they went to North Carolina, just say like, oh, you mean like UNC Asheville, or like, <laughs> oh, you mean like you know UNC like Fayetteville, just like assume they went to lesser UNCs than Chapel Hill, and it just like makes people absolutely apoplectic. That's funny. That's really funny. Yeah. That, Penn State has that issue too. I know. With lesser yeah, Penn states, yeah, big state schools, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, in New York, there isn't a main one. They're just all this, like all the like. I went to SUNY Fredonia, and there, but there's no main SUNY. They're all like kind of equal in a way. Yeah, no, I have no idea. I mean, I guess because like the you know the institutional schools of like or like NYU and Columbia and the city and stuff like that. I mean, there's been there's such older schools that aren't state schools, but right. Anyway, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so much I want to talk to you about today. Um, so let's see. Should we start with wrestling or football? Where do you want to go first? Oh, your call, man. I'm 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 good for either one. All right, let's let's do a little football first, because then we can just. I just want to do a few minutes. So, explain to me what happened here. So, you're a Cowboys fan, but now you're just now you're Carolina. Like, what happened there? Well, uh, I know it seems like. You know, I'm just sort of like a front runner here, and I kind of I jumped on the train, or you know, whatever. Like, there's a sea of metaphors that could be used, I guess. Um, I never watch a professional football game, with the exception of maybe you know a Thanksgiving game or something like that, until uh, ninth grade when I moved to Texas. Like before that, I had lived in Kentucky and North Carolina. I watched basketball and mostly college basketball like that was that's what i was brought up on i moved to texas and like the first day i touched down you know some kids were like we well, are coming over to watch the cowboys game right and i'm like yeah i need friends so <laughs> that's when i like became uh, a football fan of course i became a dallas fan this is like this is how it works and uh i mean i also became a dallas mavericks fan in that period of time and i'm still a diehard dallas mavericks fan but um you know over the years not living there um you know, my allegiance to the Cowboys was just sort of rote, and it and it wasn't a lot of fun. And I'm sure a lot of like struggling franchises or fans of struggling franchises can agree. And I didn't mean to make like it was never in my head that I was just like gonna, you know, gonna divorce myself from them. Um, but then you know, the, I mean, this season was just bad, and I think it was just the Greg Hardy thing. It wasn't like I wanted to take some moral stand, but like I just wasn't cheering for them, and it was that I just kind of had to come to terms with it, and sort of simultaneously. Um, you know, I'd always been a fan of the Panthers because, you know, when they, I was a big NFL fan when they started up and, and that was just always my, you know, my, my second team. And, um, what's the connection? Uh, 
just because you well my family my family like all of my family lives in charlotte like okay. when i was when i was when i was in college my parents moved back to charlotte all, like my dad's whole family lives there gotcha um so like i was you know like like my earliest my, my early the earliest like sports clothes that i wore were charlotte hornets gear when they first started that's what like all i got for christmas for like six years like that was just charlotte Hornets hats and sweatshirts and stuff gotcha um so then, you know, and like the, you know, the big thing, and and I don't know if it, I guess if it sounds like something legit or not, but one of the biggest things was that like my dad and even my mom are like huge Panthers fans and watch every game, and like I love to be able to like call and talk to my dad about sports, and I have yeah. like you know this thing, this like team in common, and <clears throat> I, I you know I was joking around about it on the podcast, but like you know the Panthers weren't like I was I didn't make this decision at 14 and 0 you know <laughs> when I was just like forget the Cowboys I'm, I'm on the Panthers train now I mean I think they had won a few games but um but yeah I mean it, and and more than anything I just got swept up in the season and 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 it's it's uh it's it's been fun you know yeah no I mean in 2009 I mean my team went 13 and 0 and won the Super Bowl eventually and it, it, there's nothing better than that and I totally relate to the the thing about being wanting to talk to your dad. I mean, I, that's the bad thing about being a Saints fan in Buffalo is pretty much everyone I really, truly love is a Bills fan. And as much as I at times can hate the Bills, I do. They were so supportive in 2009. I mean, everyone I loved was with me the day that the Saints won the Super Bowl, except for my brother Anthony, who was playing junior hockey in Sioux Falls. So he was in South Dakota at the time. And like, like I was literally, my my brother Greg literally caught me in his arms when Tracy Porter picked off Peyton Manning, and like I <laughs> I want them to feel like that here. Like I want, I'd rather it's for the Sabers because I'm a huge Sabers fan. But like, you know, I still always talk to my dad about the Bills and like try to. My hate has has weakened, especially since the Saints won the Super Bowl. So, um, I totally get that and. And I get what it's like to enjoy a season like this. And if you have any connection to a team and they get on a run that the Panthers been on, have been on since three eight and one last year, that's just that's just awesome. Like it's just so cool, especially in the NFL, because yeah. there's losses. Well, just in the to NFL. see, I mean, just to to watch Cam over the past few years has been. Well, let's talk about Cam. Been... Let's talk about okay, him for a second because, like, look at there's a lot of talk about hating Cam, loving Cam this week. Um, I know Cam attributed it to um, being an African-American quarterback yesterday. And I just want to make this point to you as someone who has spent a lot of time hating Cam. Uh, it's for one reason only. He kills my team. And, yeah. and listen, here's the thing about him. He's a lot like – my hate for him is a lot like it was for Steve Young when Steve Young was killing my team when the Saints and 49ers were still in the division. He's a very frustrating opponent because you got him dead to rights. He is in your fingertips, and then he's gone, and then he's beating yeah. you, and then he's beating you, and he's dancing, and he's dancing some more, and dancing some more, and some more, and some more, and I don't mind that in its, like, like like I don't mind the idea of like these guys having fun. They kill themselves out there. Like I get so annoyed with the penalties for so but like I'm not against the dancing. It's not that. It's that when a guy is that good and he's look at, he can only be on one team. 
and he yeah. beats a lot of the teams he plays, right? Like, they're, he's tortured 18 teams already this year, whatever, 17 teams. He's tortured. He, he's fr- a frustrating opponent. He's a really easily hateable opponent. And when he's on your team, that's got to be the coolest thing ever. And you, like, that's what I think it is. Like, I just think he's a, and I'm sure there's some of the other stuff in there. I'm sure he's not totally wrong, unfortunately, about, no, I mean, about I'm, what he said. You know, I know, I know that you have that Josh Levine is on the show too. But yeah, he, he published he published a great piece by Tommy Craig yeah, on, on yeah. Newton mm-hmm. last week, and um, uh, you know, I, I agree with I agree with just about everything in there. But one of the most interesting kind of points that he raises is that like the argument is over, the argument is settled, but it keeps re- returning nonetheless because it feels like the conversation we should be having about Cam Newton and race, sort of. Um, I mean, there's still going to be a lot of people that that, you know, will bring it up and that do have weird, you know, in my opinion, indefensible feelings about it. But but I think that, it, you know, that goes to what you're saying. I mean, it's it's true. I think that he's just, um, he's, especially this season, he's just, like, become transcendent in a sort of indefinable way. And there's some degree to which, like, we we kind of, like, fall back on a racial conversation because we're because the because the feelings about him are so strong but also sort of inexplicable i mean there there definitely is that aspect that if you're looking to be offended you know by a black quarterback he will he is there for you um but at the same time if you're looking for if you're if you look at him and you want to see just like this post-racial superman then like he's that too you know so um I think that I certainly think that there's that there's you know some some you know racism inherent in the issue and and it's and it's built into the conversation, but I think that what you're what you've experienced is the real is probably the most prevalent feeling where it's that he's just he he he's gotten so good so quickly. I mean, there is a, it's a pretty steady curve, but like the past year and a half have just been nuts. But and he's also doing this sort of like like. Wildcat. I mean, I'm not not talking about the style of play, but it's like when the Wildcat came into the league, and it took everybody a year to figure it out. Like you, I don't know if he's just that good, or if just people haven't quite figured him out yet. But he's he's when you watch him, it seems like he should be solvable from the other side, right? It seems like, except for the you know the really, I'm sure just like the eight yard runs if you're playing against the Panthers that he can just get at any point in time. Just must be just just must kill you. But just, you know, as a, as a, as a passer and even someone as a runner, it seems like he should be solvable, but he's just not, or not yet. And that's, I think the most frustrating thing about him. And it's like young cam was so immature that that was the, that was your opening that if you could just get to him a little bit early, the bad body language started, the poor leadership skills, the, he was such a front runner early in his career. If they were going good, he played better. If you could get to them a little bit, but now as he's now as the years are progressing, he's getting a little bit older, a little bit wiser, and more mature. I didn't see that at all this year. And not too many teams no. got to him, obviously. They got to stay above that curve almost all the time, but even in the moments when usually he would drop his shoulders and his head and be frustrated, it wasn't there this year. I wanted it to be, but it just wasn't there. You just couldn't break him that way anymore, and it's a huge credit to him. I've seen him in the as a fan of the NFC South, watching a lot of NFC South football. 
I've seen the maturation of the guy, and that's even more frustrating because you knew you weren't going to be able to compete athletically. You just knew that that's just a freak out there. That athletically and, – and Drew Brees is a lot like that in different ways. Like Drew Brees is an unbelievable freak of an athlete. I mean he's a guy who was beating Andy Roddick in tennis in high school or whatever. Um, yeah. But with Cam, it's just a different level of athleticism. And it was like we had this one thing. That's gone now. Like you can't even that's – that's just a dumb point at this point. He is mature now. He is everything now. He's the full package, and he's a very, very difficult – and frustrating opponent. And if he's on your team, it's got to be the greatest feeling ever. And if he's not, it's got to be really, really frustrating. And like the two games that the Saints and Panthers played this year. First game, Breeze doesn't play. So for Saints fans, the whole day you're saying, this is such a joke, whatever, great, you beat us by eight points because stupid backup quarterback couldn't get the ball over Josh Norman's head. On the last player, we'd be lining up for two right now. All right, whatever. A total sour grapes game. And then the game in the Superdome, the Saints, <laughs> the, the, the Saints take the lead for the last time, kick the ball off, and the whole time sitting there like, yeah, all right, Cam, great. Drive down and get your win against the 32nd-ranked defense. Go ahead, pal. Yeah, you're just the best. You're the great. Like, that's how frustrating it is. It's like. And that's the hate. It's not to me. It's not about anything other than that. But I know that those people exist. I know they do. The other people, the people that can maybe talked about. But in my naivety of like the America I want to live in, or the America I think that <laughs> we do live in to some degree, I, I want to believe it's more about that. that yeah. That, I mean, listen, we're we're so we're we're so accustomed to seeing quarterbacks who are like playing quarterback on television. You know, whenever they're like on the sideline or, or you know, post game interviews, anything like that, that it is just like slightly unnerving to see a quarterback that is, you know, on ESPN, the weird catchphrase has been like he's just having fun, um, but but like there is that that is there's something of that to it, right? I mean that like he's a guy that's willing to just you know grab a fan's banner because like that is a funny thing to do and he's just like clearly enjoying himself like he's not he's not there is this is there's no ill will or anything and there's something just really amazing about that compared to you know all of the less quote-unquote hateable quarterbacks but who are like there's something about in like in the ear of cam watching somebody like I mean, Russell Wilson is uh, probably the second best quarterback in the league, is, or Tom Brady is. It's just like it's unnerving and frustrating to watch them in the era of Cam because they're like clearly so robotic so much of the time, um, and it, it's just. I mean, it's 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 he, he Cam is just he, he's it's strange, but it's but you know, like you said, as a fan, it's it's fun to be a part of it. Well, for the purpose of my expertise, and just to kind of wrap this up, let's compare him to Drew Brees a little bit because I've spent the last 10 seasons now having a guy on my team that literally I never dreamed could be on my team. I knew guys like this existed. <laughs> I just never believed when I was watching Billy Joe Tolliver or Billy Joe. I'm a big Holbert. fan of Billy Joe Tolliver from, uh, from super tech mobile. <laughs> yeah, I'm way. sure you are. Or uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he was fantastic at that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, maybe, uh, you know, the Aaron Brooks era. Um, I could go on and on with the list of horrible quarterbacks. I never dreamed that a guy like this could exist. And he does. I never thought we'd have a quarterback who like 
this year signed so many autographs at the end of training camp that the team left, so he just took his shoulder pads off and walked through the streets of New Orleans home with, like, 20 kids trailing him and just, like, had fun in the streets with these kids, like, walking home from practice. And I think he plays the game with a lot of fun, but he doesn't dance. He just fist pumps, daps his teammate on the back, you know, or whatever, and runs to the sideline. And, I mean, I just prefer that a little bit. Maybe I'm square or whatever, <laughs> but, uh, like, and and I will completely admit that if the next guy to come along to take that spot is more like Cam, I'll get used to it quick. I'll be okay. I'll get used to yeah. it quick. But there's a lot of guys who are one way and him who is just a little different way. And it's hard for people to adjust to because he's just not what all the other guys are. Now, you might call it robotic, and in some senses it might be. I've never felt that there's anything robotic about Drew Brees. I mean, I wait every game, win or loss, to watch his presser online since they've been streaming him the last three years because I love to listen to the guy talk. I love to listen to him talk about football. He is the most unbelievable – I think a lot of these guys are like this – the most unbelievable just brain – for remembering what happened on the field even six years ago. Like the last Drew Brees something about a game, and he'd be like, yeah, I remember my second year here, we played this team, and this happened. And he's just like, play for play for play for play. Yeah. It's like, whoa. you know. And, yeah, no, um, I agree with that. Like, I literally won't remember what I said in this podcast by right. the time I hang up the phone. So, I, I mean, and listen, I'm a, I'm a big Drew Brees fan. I completely agree with everything you said. Um, he is a very natural guy. Um, you know, he's a Texas guy, so. Yeah. I, you know, he's, who, he's who, a... He's a uh, yeah, some of that guy. is just the sort of Texas straight talk, I think. But, um, but yeah, I mean, but he was never like he was always an underdog, even as great as as great as he's been. And I don't think that he was put in the position of having of of feeling pressured into being, um, you know, uh, an icon in the way that some other quarterbacks have been. Right, and, like Peyton, for and, example, maybe. Yeah, Peyton, right. Peyton's a really good example. Peyton so. had a learning and, and certainly college. and certainly going back to the Tommy Craig's piece. Yeah. It's certainly a thing that like black quarterbacks in in the past, I mean even in the present, have feel a lot of pressure to be uh to be a, a certain sort of professional athlete in, in public and not um you know, the idea of a black quarterback being even like Drew Brees, it would have been kind of galling in at a, you know, in the past. So um but I agree. I mean I think Drew Brees is is, is incredibly fun to listen to and he's a good guy and you know, all, uh, I even like his jeans commercial. So, and maybe he would dance, but maybe he's just not good at it. Maybe he looks silly. You know, like maybe I want. I want to say that you know, like if I were a professional athlete, if I were if I were like a starting NFL quarterback, and I was party to the scoring of a touchdown, I would want to dance with every fiber of my body, and I would probably be too, pe- be too petrified to do it. And you know, and, and that'd be the same way. And the one thing I'll say, and we really got to move on to wrestling because we're just talking away. Uh, the one thing I'll say too is like, this exists in hockey too with with celebrating goals, and yeah. the Canadian establishment especially will come down really hard on international players who quote unquote celebrate two goals goals too much, like Ovechkin, uh, for example. You know, is vilified often for the way the joy of scoring a goal overtakes him. And Pavel Bure in the 90s and 2000s was like this as well. He would explain how scoring a goal was just the the most favorite thing in his life. And he would want to express that. And, you know, a lot of guys think you raise your stick, you tap your teammate, you go to the bench. That's it. You know, my brother who played hockey at a very high level, I remember 
uh, a couple years ago, his team yeah was playing Harvard at Madison Square Garden. I said to him before, I'm like, hey, if you get one tonight, it's okay to enjoy it a little bit. Like, you know, take the moment. In. And he's like, yeah, that's probably right in theory, but I just, I just can't do that that way. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, know. I just it's so crazy. I mean, it's funny that like this is still a thing to talk about because it's not like there's a lot of there's not a lot of like middle ground right i mean it's yeah. there there are some people who think that that's true for a very specific reason and there's like usually a majority of people who of you know can could kind of care less um and you know i mean in some ways it's just another one of the things in sports we just need like a, a like a worldwide like sports uh like meet like a like a council of trent for like sports <laughs> norms or something where we can just all decide to like stop caring about touchdown celebrations and like stop caring about like non-lethal performance enhancing drugs and you know i mean just like there's and i'm not even talking about what the rules of the sport should be i just mean like the way that we react to them as fans as media um it's like we're it's almost like a semantic conversation that never ends you know it's like we cuz there's not <laughs> like literally like on on most of these things the vast majority of people agree and and you know people are just trying to to like hot take some uh some some spice into the world so all right, we have to move on. Uh, we're talking to we David. do, yeah, we're we talking. do, and it, and it makes and I'm glad we did it in that order because on Sunday I was watching the Panthers, yeah, and I had a really I had a really difficult, I you know I I don't know you mentioned my podcast Cheap Heat yeah, last week amazing. I I realized live as we were live on tape that the Panthers and the Royal Rumble were going to be uh, on at the same time, right, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, it makes me a bad fan of of one or the other, but the but um. You know, I had various plans to how I was going to watch the Rumble and how I was going to watch the Panthers game, and eventually I just tossed it all out and I watched the whole thing uh, at home with my um, uh, actually half. And then right before the electricity went out in the downstairs of my house, um, so I was like in my room, thankfully, you know, with a second TV and then like my laptop or iPad open, just like so both screens were like within. Uh, equal distance from my face, and um, and you know, kind of watch the the pay per view on mute until the Panthers game was was over. Right, and they did a um, nice thing and just kind of blew the other team out for you. There's no sweating that one out or anything. You were able to kind of relax yeah, no, but you know, I mean, like, like you don't want to you don't, you don't bell. Want to turn it off. Yeah, of course you know? not. You got to especially it. after especially <laughs> after the Seahawks game. Yeah, no, so, you enjoy. Um, it. Yeah, you take every minute in. Enjoy. Yeah, it but down. it was really great, yeah. and I think right around the time that the that the game ended. Um, the it was like the divas match was going on and and uh you know this is like jumping way in the deep end for anyone that's listening that's not a wrestling fan but um you know i guess we're beyond spoiler period now like the yeah. the the champion charlotte retained and then sasha banks came out and and acted like she was making friends with her and then attacked her and sasha is like one of my favorite people in all professional wrestling um and i was just like you know, just like looked over at my friend and I was just like, geez, can like, like Sasha and Cam Newton are like the prom king and queen of, uh, of like my life right now. Like they should just be like, they should procreate for the betterment of society or something. Like they're two of my, they're just the greatest human beings alive. Um, but yeah, it was the Royal Rumble was on Sunday and, uh, and it was, it was really, really amazing. And we're going to have to ask people who are listening to this to listen to Cheap Heat this week to get more of a detailed reaction from you on the Rumble. So we're not going to be able to get to it to that degree. And you just tell me when you have to tap out. I'll talk to okay, you. Okay, cool. Oh, I, got some, I got a little bit of time. Don't okay. worry about it. Um, let's start with the Divas a little bit because I, I told you on email a little bit that I wanted to talk to you about this phenomenon of seemingly anything happened in the world of women's wrestling which I think I like mm-hmm. women's wrestling a lot more than divas wrestling. I think somehow 
there's a really distinct difference between what happens with the women on the NXT side and how it's presented and developed and the time they give it and all that compared to Divas Wrestling and WWE. I think certainly the next thing is much more compelling and more interesting. And I still f- would rather watch midget wrestling than what they sh- I don't. I, I guess that's an offensive term now, but that's just what they call it. Little people wrestling, maybe they'd call it now. I don't know. I'd rather watch that than what they do with these clearly athletic, capable of more people on the main show. But there's this phenomenon of like everything that it's become so popular and so hot that let's take the two Sasha versus Bailey matches. Okay, you watch. Okay. You watch the one live. The first one was at the in Brooklyn. Yeah, in Brooklyn. the NXT Takeover Brooklyn. Yeah, fantastic match. Maybe the best women's wrestling match I've ever witnessed. Watched. Mm-hmm. Thought it was amazing. Loved the story they told. Thought it was really good. Didn't think it was necessarily better than, was it Owens and Baylor after that? Yeah. I thought they were about equally fantastic. Maybe maybe I'd even give the girls that night an advantage that maybe they beat it out a bit. Uh, a great match. Just I'm not. There's nothing negative to say about it. I thought it was fantastic. They told a great story. It was really fun. I enjoyed it. They They hit on that one. And then they redid it the next time. And it was one of the – it was terrible. I could not understand what people enjoyed about that just repeated match that was the most predict- – you're telling me that a professional athlete like Sasha Banks would tap out with one second left in a 30-minute Ironman match? She oh, okay. Have, we're getting into the we're, we're getting into the, the the smarky territory now. She didn't right. have the will in her body to last one second, and there was no need for that match. Sasha, and this is a general problem I have with the WWE and Next. I think once you move into the one world, you need to stay there. Um, I just my broader point is that it's become that no matter what these girls do, it's five star greatest thing you've ever seen, and I just think that that's just not. That's just not actually what's happening. Sometimes yeah. it is, and sometimes it's just not, in my opinion. And maybe yeah, I'm well, wrong. Well, but... listen. I mean, we're coming off the Royal Rumble right now, and right. one of the like the one of the most common refrains, the, the the most common complaints that people say about the Royal Rumble these days is that it's not surprising like it used to be, right? And and the thing, I mean, professional wrestling is, uh, I mean, one of the most intrinsic uh, aspects of it, and that it's like like pseudo sports storytelling is the element of surprise and they can shock you in ways and they can you know, whatever that, that, um, that they can surprise you. I mean, that's just the way to say it with the Royal rumble. People complain that, you know, there's no surprise entrance anymore and there's nothing shocking that happens. But every, when people say that they're thinking back to their childhood where like actual surprising things could happen that weren't leaked to the internet five days before, or even if they hadn't, even if they weren't legit rumor links, there wasn't this like online community that parsed out every possibility and made you dull to the concept of like any storytelling that could happen. Right. Uh, all all of that is right. to say, yep. surprise is a real thing. And I think for uh, the vast majority of people that saw Sasha Bailey in Brooklyn, even if they had been watching NXT, just there, there, so much about that match came as a surprise. Um, you know, just the existence of that match happening on that level, on that stage, that uh, the intensity of the match, the length of the match, the style of the match, 
um, you know, it exceeded expectations to such a degree that there was really no way that, a, that like, that like the sequel was going to live up to them. And That's the sequel fair. was a lesser match, you know, much lesser. Um, not rated a lesser. And, and, and the, and the, 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 you know, the, the environment was, you know, significantly different. Um, it's it's just a different situation. I, I think in a general sense, I agree with you that there are divas matches, women's matches that, that are, um, you know, graded on a curve, but like it's, it's a larger, um, I mean, the opportunities are some are, are fewer in a, in a lot of ways. So like there, there is still an element to which like we're able to be pleasantly surprised with a match on raw. Um, that and when we might be just sort of it used to be that the women's matches were like the popcorn matches which is you know right. the not so it absolutely um, was for me at the Royal Rumble I didn't watch more than five seconds of that I well, got, but I, I, got think my on, dog I think that on ready for bed I, and walking around and but I think that on I think for a lot of people now that's you know it that it used now the the popcorn match has been I mean the women's match has been um has has moved up in the rankings and the popcorn matches, whatever the, the, you know, the least significant man, if male on male matches of the night. Right. It very um, easily. So I think that, I think that just, just the, just the attention being paid, um, you know, is, is a big, big shift. And it's easy to say, this is the greatest women's match I've ever seen. When you were like literally in the bathroom for all of the women's matches at pay-per-views over the past 10 years. That's a great point. That's a great, that's a really good point. And look at I'm gonna sound like I'm gonna sound like the heel in this conversation. I'm okay with that, but this is really the WWE's fault because they've conditioned us to this. And even still, um, with arguably a much more talented, less model-based field of competitors, they still don't give it enough time. As much as Stephanie wants to stand in the middle of the ring and talk about what a revolution they're having. They're not really having one on the main roster. It's still basically one match, a card. Uh, maybe in rare occasions there's two. They still usually no, don't give it enough time. There's still usually not enough of a story being told. And that's one thing I think I have appreciated. I don't like Charlotte that much because I feel like I can. it kind of comes across to me that she's not really passionate about the business, that it's just a way for her to grieve. And I know she sort of admitted that, and I wonder if because she said it, that's why I'm feeling it. But I just feel like there's a little bit of disconnect with her. But she's really done a great job in her storytelling um, yeah. with Becky Lynch, yeah. and it engaged me a bit more than anything they've done has. And that's and that's really what was great about uh, Bailey and Sasha was they told a great story before, leading up to, and during in the match, and um, yeah, well. I'll say this too. I mean, look, the stories outside of the ring, um, you're, I mean, have, have been good in those. And, and I'll, you know, I'll take exception to some of what you said about Charlotte. But you know, you're obviously you have your opinion, and I, and I see where you're coming from. Um, I think that, like, if you you know, go back to Charlotte's first appearance on NXT and her. I mean, she was as raw as could be, and then at some point, um, she like she just started putting pieces together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just like, you know, I mean, it's like a quarterback suddenly like figuring out how to read defenses. Like, oh, wait, now, now I know how to play this position. And she and she kind of jumped up a whole lot. And I think there's been a little bit of a plateau, but I don't think that I think that for her, it's going to come in, in big leaps in you know, in big sporadic leaps. 
because um, there is a sort of there there is an element to which you know she I guess the you know the greatest insult you can give a wrestler is it's like they're they're like they they seem like they're playing a professional wrestler. Um, and yeah, there is a little bit of that when that. she talks. Yeah. She's been much better of late. Turning her kind of heel and, and, and bringing her dad in, I thought was a really, a really good move. And uh, and you know, I I enjoy her, but I think that her 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 greatest gifts are um, just like the, the the how great she can do certain things in the ring and just sort of being she in in a lot of ways she is she is emblematic of where women's wrestling has come from now there's never never been a you know a physical freak like her but the fact that like the tallest like most model-esque blonde you know blondest girl in the in the women's division is is the villain uh is i think is a sort of interesting sign of progress but the uh and, and and she she plays that role really really well right yeah, and, and you guys talked about it on GP, and people can listen to it. You guys get into it a little bit more. Um, I think it was Rosenberg who just kind of tapped into the blandness sometimes of the characters. Um, yeah. And uh, maybe Becky Lynch is an example, and I think he said a lot of the things I was feeling about her. And I think it goes beyond that. I think we've we've talked in the past about how maybe one of the downsides to NXT was going to be that as we got further and further down the road, the guys were going the, – the wrestlers – I shouldn't have said guys. The wrestlers, whether male or female, are going to get a little bit similar because they're being taught by the same people, sort of the same way to do the same things. And I think we're really starting to feel it in the women's division because the, almost the whole women's division is slowly not, – not as slowly becoming the people from that world. And I feel it the most in like the entrances. Like – and I watched that Battleground show, and you kind of see why. Because, like, they're so choreographed, just like the entrances. And there's just no – it just doesn't feel natural at all. And, well, yeah. Um, I mean, listen, if it, there, there is a there, – I mean, the Battleground show is a good example. When when everybody's – when everybody has, you know, is in the same schoolroom, then, like, yeah. like, you start seeing – with teachers, what gets teachers approval, and you can start mimicking that. Um, I, I think that there, there. I, I mean, I think that that's a real thing. Um, although I was going to say earlier, and I didn't. I mean, one of the greatest things that's, that's come out of the, you know the the training ground. I mean, the training facility in Florida, um, the the performance center, is uh, and, and and made it all the way on the raw and into the pay per views. Is that I I honestly think that that the women tell stories in the ring better than the men do for the most part. It's I mean, they, obviously there's, there's a lot yeah. more attention paid to like the, to the, to the, you know, main event matches at pay-per-views and, and there's some people like, you know, like Kevin Owens is a great example who just knows how to tell a story even with like a five minute match. But, um, you know, when you, when you ask why like people go crazy for, for the big divas matches, I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh, and, 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 you know, that exists down there in Florida too. I mean, I actually took the, took the counterpoint on the podcast about what you were saying is that like one of the most kind of frustrating things for me as a, as a, as an adult wrestling fan is, you know, I like, I like big, thick, uh, gimmicks as much as everybody else, like heavy gimmicks. Um, I, you know, cause they make me flash back to childhood, but it's when when these when when they debut a new wrestler and he's a ballroom dancer or he's a you know a garbage man or he's whatever it's Destined like you can have all this as an aspect of your character but it's but it's 
it's a, you can't pretend. I mean, like the 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 one the first and foremost thing of every quote unquote character on WWE should be that they are professional wrestlers who want to win the championship belt, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's what the the the, the divas division is doing better um, than the rest of WWE because um, you know they all have different shocking colors of hair, but they are all just like people who have you know, their real backgrounds for the most part, and they all want to beat each other because they all want to be the champion. And I, and, and that might be a little bit repetitive at times, and that's going to be a, you know, something WWE's got to figure out a way to, to get past, but I really appreciate it for what it is. And it's a million times better than it ever was before. I have to acknowledge that there there's, I would have never even wanted to talk five minutes to you about this. I know we've talked about it for a while. Yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah, and so we do need to move on because we we gotta get to a couple more things before you need to go. And I know we're getting close to that. Um, Let me lay this out on you, and you can react. Roman Reigns—they're having such a hard time. They're trying to get it there. It seemed like they were breaking through when he was beating up Vince initially. He was getting cheered a bit more, and I feel like they've totally wrecked it again on Sunday. Let me ask you this. They set up a match where it was going to be all the odds against him, and he was going to have to come in number one, and he was going to have to outlast all these competitors and stay in the ring a long time to be able to remain champion. And then the <laughs> story they told on the screen was garbage. They they sent out the League of Nations to pull him out of the ring under the bottom rope for some reason. Like these, This 70-year-old smartest guy in the history of wrestling, Vince McMahon, sends his goons out not to eliminate uh, Roman Reigns, but just to to beat him up. And and he, so un-good guy-like, accepts the stretcher ride to the back. They didn't didn't gurney him down. They didn't tie him down or anything. He just kind of got on there. They kind of wheeled him out. And he just sat in the back until he was ready to come out. And he didn't sell it all. He just kind of ran out. Like, look at the difference of when Kevin Owens entered the Royal Rumble and when... Roman Reigns returned to the Royal Rumble. Yeah. Like there was, there was, it just looked to me like a guy who voluntarily went to the back for a while and then came out at the end to try to get a cheap win. Like that's not yeah. the guy you cheer. That's the guy you boo. Yeah, he basically did what the Miz did when he came out and just sat at the commentary desk for ten minutes before he got in the ring. Which was a great heel um, move by Miz. But I thought we're, I thought they want us to be conditioned to cheer for this guy like he's Cena. Yeah, it's sort of strange. It's particularly strange where if you're going to take the title off of him, that you don't just combine those things. Like, it doesn't need to necessarily be the match itself. It doesn't need to be a narrative about Roman Reigns overcoming the odds um, because that's the, long, that's the long-term story, right? I mean, he can, uh, you know, it, 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 did, it did play really, really strangely. Now, you know, you, you started off by asking, like, it looked like they had gotten to a place of some moderate success with Roman Reigns, and now they've sort of backtracked. Um, I think there's two things going on. One is that in, in uh, at, what was the pay-per-view? At, at, in Philly, they fully, I mean, they just told a brilliant story. Right. And when he was beating up Vince, you know, all that beating up Vince, beating and beating up Triple H, they just told the story really well that night. And if you if you write a perfect, you know, screenplay for, for a pay-per-view, you have a captive audience, um, and they are going to be along for the ride if you do it really well. 
uh, you know, if, if you, if you don't do it really well, then you end up, you can end up in a, in a, the totally opposite, you know, position. Um, but I think that the other thing that's going on is that, is that, you know, a lot of fans, the ones who are the loudest fans in the arena are predisposed to not be on board with this angle. It's not that they hate Roman Reigns. It's that they feel like WWE is kind of shoving it all down our throats and, they can get caught up in, you know, a great night for Roman Reigns as much as anybody else can, but then in the intervening time between then and the next big show or then in the next Raw, you sort of reconnoiter and get ready to, like, you know, start hating on the product. Right, again. if they give you an inch to hate it, they'll just take that, yeah. a, take it into a mile to hate it, right? Exactly. Right. And, you and know, I, yeah. I think that... I think that it's a weird. They're in a WWE is in a super weird situation because this is a story that they've just sort of like decided they're going to tell, right? Um, and that's how most wrestling storylines work. You know, you make the decision, you follow through. Um, but you know, this is a, this is one where um, I think they're, I think in the how to say this like it, 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 after they've made some, once you made the decision that this is the story you're going to tell, they've actually done a really good job of telling it there are glaring missteps like the way they handled Roman in the rumble. It just seems like, like, you know, the, the, what, sometimes there is a filter in the creative process and, uh, sometimes there is not, you know, and, 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 um, the Royal rumble felt like the, at least the Roman reigns part of it felt like, um, you know, it just was a couple of workshops away from being ready for air. Right. And by the way, uh, they beat him clean. In the end, he really didn't get screwed. Triple H just picked him up and dumped him out of there. Like, yeah, I know he got I mean, listen, beat they, up by those Triple guys. H came back. Triple H came back as this like returning conqueror, but he's a villain, right? And they right. they um, projected it in so much as I mean, I guess it's the opposite. But they projected it by not talking, by literally like pretending he didn't exist for about a month. Um, and then he made this this not in particularly shocking comeback. Uh, as the last person to enter the rumble and um, the crowd cheered for him because he's a returning superstar and that's what wrestling crowds do. And And then they, then WWE did what I think is a really smart thing by having him go, you know, in the match, it wasn't him versus Roman. It was him versus Dean Ambrose because Dean Ambrose is um, maybe the closest thing to a pure baby face that the WWE has right now. And Meltzer said they might've done that on the fly. I wonder if that's true. Huh? Meltzer. I think Meltzer said that they might've adjusted that kind of on the fly. That that it, his take was that, or he said that a source told him that originally, you know, Roman was going to be the guy tossed, but because of the reactions, they kind of called an audible and made it Dean. And maybe that, well, I think that, that I think true, that, that regardless, yeah. that is it, it's the exact same thing, right? right? I mean, no matter when the decision was made, it was um, a good one. The decision, yeah. you know, it was yeah. it was the right decision, yeah. and it was made because you know Dean is a is a is a easier. Um, Dean, Dean doesn't have the like the the negative the negative side of the, Dean. Dean has all of the let's go Cena that Roman has, and none of the Cena sucks. We'll put it that way. Very, very um, smart. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean it's it's I I think that I think that moving forward with Triple H's champ is a is a risky move. But um, you know, heading into WrestleMania season, I feel like it's I feel like it's the right one, and I love. Triple H. I mean, I know yeah, that that's great. not like the most popular opinion no, on the great. internet, but um, I mean, he's he's very very good at being a professional wrestler, and I think he's actually, um, you know, I've enjoyed his kind of post pseudo retirement matches in ring more than I've ever enjoyed him before, um, and I just think it's, I mean, on some level, it's kind of nuts that 
that you know the WrestleMania pay per view is Roman Reigns versus Triple H. Uh, cha- champion Triple H, but I mean we don't know that for sure. That certainly looks like to be right. the way it's headed. Um, but but you know, as far as like clearly predetermined storylines go, I mean there's nothing about the Roman Reigns storyline that hasn't been projected a mile away. Uh, the only surprises that have come in it are when WWE reversed course. Um, so you know, as far as a Roman Reigns like you know scrapping to become champion storyline goes, I'm okay with this one. Yeah, and we have to acknowledge the fact that they've been sort of backed into a corner that doesn't have a lot of options because of no fault of their own. Just because, I mean, I talk to my wife and I'll be like, yeah, Cena, he's out. He won't be at Mania. Rollins, he's out. He won't be at Mania. And I just keep like, naming guys and she'll be like, do they even have this many guys? Like, what are they going to do? How are they going to have a show? Like, it, it blows her mind that they could possibly lose this many guys and still have a show. And, and I feel bad because... I don't know. JR still thinks they're going to do 100,000 in Dallas, and I hope they do, but I'm just kind of nervous that they're going to get what they got last year, and it's going to just look really bad in that building. Yeah, I mean, it, the the worst thing about the, the WrestleMania being in, in Dallas is not the fear that they won't sell out just so much as, as it is, I think, the internal fear that they will figure out how many wrestling fans are, there are in the world. Right. You know, like, yeah. like if it's really the same number that we see every year and they just can't get those extra 20K in there, then, like, that that is a very definitive thing. Um, I think that probably we'll, they'll get to 100 if I had to guess, just in so much as like we, they will be promoting the number one hundred. You yeah, know, be a little bit of fudge, a little bit of fudging, a whole lot of free tickets, right? Uh, <laughs> and and you know, we'll be there because it's the value because it has such value to them, right? I mean, um, to this day, there are you can you can go online and find the online arguments about like WrestleMania three truthers you know right. i mean yeah. like people yeah. like can people are i mean i don't mean that to be disparaging one side or the other there was like a never-ending argument about how many people um like came out to see hogan slam andre right and and it's i think that that's just going to be you know like like everything else in wrestling you know it's only the, the reality is is what, what whoever's talking at the time says it is you know one thing i'll say about that wrestlemania 3 truthers because wrestlemania 3 is my thing one thing that I think almost nobody can deny is the building was full. I mean, there's a great picture from the top row looking out into the arena, and it's still daylight in there. And you can scan the whole crowd. I mean, that place was packed. It maybe just didn't hold 93,000 like they hoped or whatever based on their configuration. But whatever the number is, and it's probably in the 70s or whatever, close to 70, um, it's in, if you if the number is 70 this time, that building is too big for it to look as impressive as it looked that day at WrestleMania 3. One last thing, and I'll let you go because you got to go. We've, we're already over, and I didn't want to do this to you. I don't want you to think every time you come on the show you have to do it this long. It's not fair. <laughs> uh, I'm blaming it on football this time, though. Um, uh, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, blame everything on Cam. Just another slap in the face from Cam Newton. To, now to you directly. Look at what your guy's doing to you. Um, here's the thing that bugs me. Um, I love wrestling. At my at my heart, I love it, and um, I get annoyed. Like I like, oh man, I hate smarks. But then I look in the mirror and I'm like, wait, you're a smark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, and I get that. And uh, part of the fun is that I guess sometimes is being a, being into it to that way. I guess is fun. Um, having these smarkish conversations is kind of fun. But I do think that. 
the stories that they tell should touch. Like when I listen to Bill, your old boss, Bill and Sal, talk about the Rumble and talk about how their kids reacted to it. Yeah. That's really what they should be doing. Like, I think that the test meter should be Bill's son, not me. I really do believe that. And I think that that's a bigger part of the audience anyway. We're just louder and older. But here's the thing that, that bothers me to end real quickly. What hap- This is what happens. A wrestler comes out. He's got a gimmick. He lives a gimmick. He breathes the gimmick. He, it's a thing. It's, it can be really good. And then at some point, they cross over to where then they start playing the gimmick. Like Hulk Hogan was a Hulkamania guy. And then at some point, he was playing that guy all of a sudden. And it, and we're seeing it with Vince in this run, where the Mr. McMahon character that was so natural during the Austin run now feels like Austin, uh, McMahon playing that guy badly. Like with... You're talking about on screen, right? Not yeah, like the crossover, not crossing over into real no, life. No, no, on screen, like him walking to the ring with that ridiculous walk that was a natural thing originally. Now people have picked up on it as a mannerism of the character, and like now all of a sudden he's like exaggerating it, and it looks silly, or like the verbiage and the things that they say. And the way that they talk, like especially with Hogan and the word brother, he would use the word brother all the time in his promos in the 80s. It just felt like it was the way it talks. When he says it now, you can tell he's just forcing the word brother in, and he's even saying it in a different way to say, look it, I'm saying brother like I did as Hulk Hogan in the 80s. Like, watch me do this. And this just seems to happen with wrestlers. And I felt it for the first time with The Rock on Monday a little bit. That yeah, oh man, the maybe rock. the I mean, rock is for is crossing this threshold now. Do you know why yes. this happens? And am I dreaming this? Is this real? Or and is the rock maybe in danger of coming to that place? Uh, I actually think the rock has probably been there for a while, but he's so great that that we don't complain. Fair, um, he is great. I mean, listen, when you, I mean, the the modern. The, the modern lands, I mean, the modern like construction of wrestling, construct of wrestling is that you figure out things that work and you do them repet- repeatedly, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and it's not just storylines. It's, I mean, this is the nature of finishing moves, of like setup moves to your finishing moves, of like, you know, getting the crowd involved in every match. Um, I think that when The Rock did the first people's elbow, the wrestling world sort of changed, you know? And, um, and if you, I mean, it's, it's not a new thing. As much as you know, the rocks you know on the the rocks mic work is the greatest the industry's ever seen. But it's not this is it's not it's not a new development that he just goes out and finds awkward ways to cram in every one of his catchphrases. Right now, he does it more artfully than the vast majority of other people uh, who are alive today would. But um, but you know that's a part of that's a part of the modern thing. I agree. I mean, I, I made this this point about Vince on my podcast. That he's sort of doing a like a semi self aware parody of himself. Um, That's what I was trying to say. That, you, you said it better in like three words. That's what but I, it was. Yeah, go but ahead. it is. I mean, it's what it's what. I mean, the the, the correlation is it's what Ric Flair has kind of been become post retirement, like where he's just like just doing you know ten times as many woos, and the strut just becomes this cartoony thing, and and uh, you know he's like example, doubled yeah. down on the mm-hmm. on the. 
um, sort of Lothario aspect of his personality as he becomes less and less of one in reality, you know. The space um, guy. But, he, but it's, it, I mean, it, certainly that's part of what, that's what, part of what Vince is doing. Um, I think that, you know, there, there's probably a million reasons, I mean, I'm, I'm, that you could describe this, you know, to that, but, that, but I think that at the end of the day, uh, there's no, you know, when you when you get to a point where you're like your star is on the walk of fame, you know, you're already a Hall of Famer, if not formally, then then you will be someday. And there's just you're too old to, especially if you're too old to wrestle. There's not a lot of development in the future for your character um, that you just start kind of doing. I mean, what Vince is doing is the kind of character development version of you know, the rock coming to the ring and hitting the same three catchphrases and, you know, somebody runs out and he hits him with the rock bottom and the people's elbow and the crowd goes wild. And I mean, I was, <clears throat> I was in Madison square garden. Um, that I don't even know how long ago it was now, but when Hulk Hogan made a shocking return to help, uh, Shawn Michaels out against Muhammad Hassan. And, um, it really was a surprise Like there were rumors, but like nobody was sure. And it was the, it was the most it was the most excited I've ever been in a real life wrestling you know situation, but I wasn't responding to like the prospect of a good match or you know I wasn't responding to uh, anything that was actually happening in real time. I was responding to like the music that I mean to Hulk Hogan theme music <laughs> and um, it's there's so much in wrestling that's just Pavlovian um, that I think that. Uh, it's it's natural that they would you know fall back on that stuff, and frankly, sometimes that Pavlovian call and response stuff is better than what they would come what they would come up with if they had to do something new. Yeah, and it's ama- Like as cranky as I've maybe sounded at times during this, part of me was <laughs> part of me was doing that for to be able to set you up for the counterpoint. Part of it was real, but the bottom line is the second that Ricky Steamboat pinned. Randy Savage at WrestleMania three and finished that story, they had me for life. And I do yeah. and I do love it because of that. And I hope that whatever the equivalent moment for Bill's son happens and that they have him for life too. Um so, yeah, I mean I, I agree and I, I totally agree with what you said about, you know, kids being the audience. I think that we should I, I think that, you know, mo- as fans we should uh we should be a little bit more attuned to to that reality, but I also think that like for w from WWE's perspective, um, it's not it's not giving them a free pass, right? I mean, like right. like Lucha yep. Underground, which had its sec- second season, I guess, debut last night, yeah. um, is certainly more targeted towards a young audience in in many ways. But at the same time, it's like it just relishes in its kind of simplicity, and it's a much and a lot of times it's a much better show than what WWE puts on. Um, and I think that WWE's, you know, it's the, the the most difficult thing that they have to work with is um, the fact that I mean the, their biggest problem is that they too often try to be all things to all people and and um, you know maybe you know you talk, you we to bring this back full circle we were talking about the divas before I mean I honestly think that the solution might be just to give the divas their own TV show you know even if it's like network only have just a show that's 45 minutes of divas matches every week or you know yeah, divas well, story development stories more, yeah. and yeah. and you can you know it's okay to segment the audience and to give people different things people used to complain about raw and i would say but you know and they would say it's so much worse than nxt and i would say well wwe's giving us nxt so what's the complaint you know um <laughs> and i think that i think that there's room to do more stuff like that or to just kind of 
you know, give people more options in the way they consume. Um, but it does feel like it does. It, 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 I think it's totally legitimate to be frustrated when, you know, Monday Night Raw is not is not not really calling the shot. Like they're not trying to be one thing or another thing. They're just kind of trying to be everything. And it's and, and, and when you do that, someone's going to be disappointed, justifiably, every single time. All right. You mentioned there's many things to consume, and of course that's true for wrestling, but this is the guy. David Shoemaker is the one you should be consuming. He's at AKA The Masked Man on Twitter. His book, The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, is one of the best wrestling books I've ever read, and I've read many. Um, You can find it on Amazon.com, and you can get it for $9.99 on a Kindle, uh, and I think the same on iTunes as well. Uh, nothing to do it that way. It's on paperback. And you can get hardcovers as well. And, of course, the Cheap Heat podcast is one of the best wrestling podcasts there are. I know there's a lot of them. Uh, if you haven't listened to Cheap Heat, give it a chance. And, oh, man, I said when I, I reached out, I said, look, it, we don't have to do an hour. If you only have a half an hour, let's just do a half an hour. And here we are having done an hour. And I'm I'm truly sorry about that, but... Oh no, man! It's always fun, and this was—I enjoyed every minute of this. This is—that's—it's—it's it's a good—it's—it's it's fun to talk, you know, intelligently about wrestling. Yeah. I do it every week on my podcast, but you know, yeah, you're the I best. Pretend like I, I pretend like I don't love it, but it's great. I'm bummed out that it just seems like they're never going to clear Daniel Bryan. That breaks my heart in so many ways. Yeah, this uh, was a, a bummer. This this really seemed like when they were going to do yeah, it. If they were going to do it. Do this it now, was going to be when never, they did it. Never. That's a bummer, but I can't wait. I can't wait for Cena to come back and I can't wait for that moment when he gets number 16 whenever it is they have me at least until then no matter what they do I need to see that and I need to get myself in the arena at least one more time when his music hits because I just love watching the guys at the top he did it for so long and I admire that but good luck to the Panthers in a couple weeks I guess I can't say I'll be cheering for them necessarily but uh, good luck uh, to them um, I know what it feels like. It feels really good. So if you get that moment, enjoy it. And uh, well, I appreciate it, man. We will talk. Are you going to Dallas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be there. All right. So we have to talk after that next then. I'll okay, catch cool, you man. When you get back or something like that. That sounds good to me. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Talk to you soon, bud. All right. Later. All right, I want to thank both of our guests on the podcast today. Really, two of the better guests as a pair <laughs> we've had in a while. I want to thank them for being on the podcast. Don't Ho- forget. Hopefully, if they listen to this part, they don't think we're mocking them. That's our fluid situation joke, always. <laughs> thank you, Don. Yeah. Of course, you can hear this week's show and last week's and the week before and the season before. On our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Stitcher and iTunes and, of course, other podcast catchers mm-hmm. like Downcast, which I use to listen to the Artie Lang show. Uh, last week's show featured Brian Curtis um, and Mike Harrington. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters and at Downlake Sports. And, of course, you can email us. Sportscasters at gmail.com or say nice things about us on Reddit. Absolutely. All right. One last thing for me this week. Uh, 
this is one of the dorkiest things I ever did, and it's I don't really have like a take on it. I just wanted to get your take on it. I was going through some paperwork I had, and for whatever reason, I had all these like the cheat sheets I would take to mock draft or to fantasy drafts, and I would mm. all the like the completed teams and the draft boards and all that. I had those for some reason. And I'm like, these don't really mean anything to me, but like how I did those years might. So I started to make a spreadsheet of my career statistics. And I like statistics too. So I made a spreadsheet. This is why you're hard to beat in fantasy football. No one else would do that. <laughs> I made a spreadsheet of my career statistics for fantasy football. And I'm going to need your help after the podcast because hopefully you'll have be able to fill in some of the blanks. And if not, I've been using, a, what is it called? Archive.org. The Internet Archive that will pull up like old versions of websites to find statistics on my fantasy football career. I believe we started in 2002, or I did anyway. Okay. And that's all I got. No, I, I got all the recent stats. It's the old ones that are a little bit rough, so hopefully you have some of those. I know we pen. I think I have none. We pen and papered it essentially for like the first two or three years. Yeah, right? I do not save fantasy football information from 2002, unfortunately. What? I'd love to help you. What? I think that we use statsworld.com if you can find the Oh, Stats World. Archives on that site from 2002. That'd be the one we used. Stats World. That's yeah, right. Statsworld.com. The problem with them is I don't even know. You know what I might have is I used to make a website for our fantasy league when we were in college because you had to do it all pen and paper. And like uh, they would send you the stats. You would import pre-Stats it. Pre-Stats World. Yeah. Or maybe Stats World might have been a service you used. Uh, but like there was no website for like the users to log into. Gotcha. But yeah, so that's what I spent my time. Doing. So, did you determine what about yourself as a player? Um, I think I'm in the positive for money. I don't know about assuming you got paid all the money. Assuming I got paid all the money, but I wasn't going to take that into account. And I had to guess on some years because I know, there, I know, I think there was a year that you and I played in the championship, and we maybe it was cut a year a, league, cut a deal or something it. like that. Yeah, yeah, I think we split all the money. So that type of thing happened, and. It, but I I, sh- I know all the dues, I think, so I know how much I spent. That should be pretty accurate. But uh, my record in years I know is right now 80 and 63, so that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And I'm up in money. I think what I'm doing this for is if the wife ever gets on me for playing fantasy football and spending money, I could like whip out the spreadsheet and be like, no, look at... Look at we're, this is we'd be losing money if I stopped playing fantasy football. And then she'd immediately divorce you not, <laughs> for making spreadsheets, not for being <laughs> in the leagues, but for keeping track of them to this extent. Yeah, probably. I don't know what to say. I mean, That's I'm, very, what I figured. I'm very proud of you. I didn't want to even tell you that I did that because I wanted your reaction to be. Yeah, I'm very proud of you. I mean, I don't <laughs> I'm, not, know. I'm not sure I would be proud. Of I don't know where, where to go beyond that. I know you're a damn good player. You're relentless, as I described it. I think on this show. Yep. Last season, I mean. You can have some shitty drafts sometimes. I can. And it doesn't matter because you just you win every week the rest of the year. I'll pound. Yep. Yep. So. I'm a little curious how long it took me to do well in your league because I remember going back to the first draft. I don't even know if I prepared for it. And I, I think my first ever player picked was like Eddie George, which maybe was okay at the time. I don't know. But I, I remember I think I got crushed the first few years in your league. One last thing for me today. I couldn't be any more annoyed than I am by fans of and players who are named Pro Bowlers three times removed. <laughs> I want you to know you are not a Pro Bowler. Yeah. Okay? Just because they're willing to drag your 
sometimes underperforming asses, like in the case of Cam Jordan of the Saints, uh, down to Maui or wherever this meaningless game is being played does not make you a pro bowler. And I'm sure it's great for you because for whatever reason, the league lets you pretend that you are a pro bowler in terms of uh, contract contracts. bonuses yeah. Yeah, that's what I was say. The league does that and future yeah. contracts. Uh, but let's just take a guess, Don. 86 players were named to the Pro Bowl initially. How many replacements do you think we've had so far? I know the Bills had three of them alone. Um, and I don't mind a guy that's named a replacement because Cam Newton's not going to be in the game. Like, right. that's okay. There's been it's got to be around thirty. There was six players, quarterbacks named. Only one of them is going to be at the game. So it's five right Russell off the bat. Wilson. Maybe thirty was low. <laughs> now thirty-six replacements and counting. Wow, yeah. Fourteen players left because they're involved in the Super Bowl, which is a lot of them, admittedly. Um, and twenty-two players have backed out because of injuries or personal reasons. We've said this every single year, and I'll stand by this. I think they should. They should have the Pro Bowl. I heard Eric Wood on local radio. He's very excited to be going. He's excited to take his family down there. The same reason we talked about why John Scott should play in that game and why he should take his family. Like It is an honor to be selected. But like Bills fans, and again, I'm picking on my Facebook friends a lot. I'm going to be unfriended probably by anyone who ever listens to this. (laughs) Don't tell me that Tyrod Taylor is is a Pro Bowl quarterback. Right. He's playing in the game as the, at best... 11th best quarterback. But I don't that understand. doesn't count that Drew Brees turned it down because he's got a foot injury. Why is Cam? New- Why is he Cam Newton's replacement? Is it not AFC, NFC? or anything? It's not. No, there's a draft. Oh, right. I did hear that. Yeah, that's right. So even the players could have come. Okay. They- I thought they'd still split the conferences up, but yeah, no. he's playing for Cam Newton. Yes, which means he was the last replacement. Right. Which means six quarterbacks were initially named. I wonder what it means for Eric Wood. Four quarterbacks were then named. Like how many centers? Drew Brees passed. Yeah. How many centers are named? Uh, let's see. I can, right no, I do. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah. There were four centers named. Wood was the only replacement. So, so he that's was not the bad. fifth center. That's not bad. Yeah. Right. And I did start the take with three times removed being well, kind sure. of the Well, sure. Right, 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 right. No, I, I totally Because there agree. are snubs, and snubs get into the game because of replacements. Right. I, obviously, I don't have a problem with that. I don't know how good Eric Wood was either. You know, like inside I mean, middle linebacker, there's four of them, and there's been five named. Well, Derek Johnson arguably could have been one of the four. I'm not a huge, like, I have a huge problem with that. Right. It's like the quarterbacks, the cornerbacks, where there's been a ton of replacements. But, yeah, what I was getting at before you know, the free is free safeties. The one thing we say every single year is it's an honor for these guys to get mentioned, and you still want to have a thing next to your name for contract negotiations, like you were an all-pro yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, for the player... Look at the league is against you in so many ways, right? You're risking your body. You don't yep. have guaranteed contracts. Take that trip to Hawaii. Get the money for winning the game. That's or like you do the have money to play another game. Do players game. ever get injured in this game? I, I can't. I remember. can't remember one. I can't remember it either. But if if that's why some of these players back out, and I say this every year, make it like a kickball tournament or something. Make it bowling. I like, mean, I I remember watching guys moving out of the way of Adrian Peterson. They didn't <laughs> want to deal right. with it. Right. He wanted to win a car or whatever they give it's away like, oh, go ahead man i guess it's yours yeah. <laughs> i'm not trying that hard but, but name the guys all pros and then do a celebrity soft or softball game so right. the something. all pro is really what matters right because nobody watches the game. and they do that first team second team third team so it's not like you know we have to be really upset about a guy who wasn't named in one of the first three teams but eric Wood was talking about it he didn't know he was going to be there i mean he he knew he was the first replacement so he knew if carolina won he'd be going 
But he said he well, didn't officially the get the too, word until Carolina. They name replacements. Then there's players on this list who weren't even the name replacements <laughs> that are going. Yeah. Tyrod Taylor was not a named replacement. Malcolm Jenkins, who's a former Saint that I'm so conflicted on because I liked him as a Saint because he tried really hard. But he also did this horrible fixing a fake bow tie celebration <laughs> every time he did anything. And uh, and then he was like horrible as last year in New Orleans. Somehow he's resurrected himself in Philly. Like he's got a graphic on his Twitter. And yeah, it's like, dude, you're the sixth free safety named. Yeah, the game itself is a joke. I, I don't know. I don't know what you do about that because players don't want to get hurt. And... But it goes to show you that if you weren't named to the Pro Bowl, it does not mean that the dream is over. <laughs> <laughs> 